Yeah, it's the People's Show on a Friday. Dan Richo and Satyar Shah with you in the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. Wild weekend upcoming. The Open Championship is continuing on. Jays are in Seattle. So is Taylor Swift. So the border wait times are already ridiculous. Uh, Women's World Cup just getting started. So lots going on this weekend. Yeah, very busy weekend. Uh, you're not going to go see Taylor Swift? Uh, I don't know. I, mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like, consider myself a Swifty. You're not a Swifty? No. I would, no. I would, I would, uh, I would say not. Okay. But I'm kind of, like, curious as to, like, what the hype is about, you know? Like, is it, how, how good could the concert be that people just, like, rave about these things? All it I've could heard be. from my fiancé is that it is life-changing. Wow. How is it life-changing? Like, I want to be a part a of it. That's a pretty high bar. So, I mean, has your relationship uh, turned for the better then, ever since she saw Taylor Swift live, Josh? <laughs> well, she hasn't. Oh. She's, she's saying the experience would be life-changing. She's speculating. Oh. Reports she's speculating. are. Mm. Mm-hmm. I see. So. I see. Uh, aren't uh, Tony Robbins like uh, you know weekend uh, motivational sessions? Aren't they life changing technically? Yeah, they are somewhat <laughs> life changing. Depends. It like be. it's uh, I, you know I guess it's subjective, right? If you think that that could be life changing for somebody else, maybe not for me. I don't know. Taylor Swift. I'm I'm not I'm not in. I've heard the songs too much, anyways. You have right. I mean, I mean, I don't. I, I can't. I honestly, I don't know if I can tell you the name of any of her songs. Yeah. I know some of the songs. But I can't tell you the name of any single one of them. What? So, do you think how, how many Vancouverites are going to do the double in Seattle to watch the Mariners and Blue Way Jays and also many. see Swift? I wonder how many guys are selling it as like, "Hey, we'll go to Taylor Swift if we go to two Blue Jays." <laughs> Josh, you read my mind. That's exactly what I would do. Man, this it's is like. like- the- but like going to both is uh, you're you're creeping up on especially if you didn't plan ahead of time given hotel prices in Seattle with all the events like <laughs> right? you're you're like spending a weekend in Seattle for the price of like going to an all inclusive in Mexico. It's like a four thousand five thousand dollar weekend. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I would suggest if you want to do the double, just go watch Barbie and Oppenheimer this weekend. <laughs> there it is. We're doing the double, mate. It's Barbenheimer weekend. Um. So yeah, I don't know if that's uh, if that's happening, but uh, not not for me. Not Josh right is going to see Oppenheimer this weekend, right? Yeah, yeah. My double is uh, I talked about it yesterday, a one year old's birthday party, and then I go to uh, Oppenheimer right after. Nice. So the one year old birthday parties for one year olds are more for the parents then, right? Oh yeah, than, like the other everybody else. It's, it's my nephew, <laughs> so I have to go. But I'm like, probably going to be good pizza there. I hope yeah. so. You know, refresh refreshments. Yeah, little Always backyard. Good. Yeah. Nice little sunny day in the backyard, smashing oh, some pizza nice. and some finger foods. Sounds great to me. I like that. Um, and then close it out with uh, with Oppenheimer. So I um, wanted to get the show started off on a positive note because um, what happened with Canada yesterday in their World Cup opener, not so positive. Um, I hate to say I told you so, Sat. But Canada struggling to score, it showed up in spades through the first match yesterday against Nigeria, and it finishes goalless for the Canadians. And uh, they trail Australia in Group B, who got a win in their first match over Ireland. 
and it makes the next two matches of the group phase that much more interesting for Canada. I will say, okay, you're right. Like, everything you were talking about, like, their lack of finish and, and the quality is all there, right? I do feel like there's a lot of doom and gloom. Australia beating Ireland is a good thing. Yeah. Right? Because, like, now Ireland has a loss, right? And if you beat Ireland and all of a sudden you, you have a chance to get out of the group still. So I think be getting out of the group was big to see Australia win and Ireland losing, them getting no points. So all of a sudden now Canada and Nigeria are tied for second in the group, right? So I think for all this doom and gloom, I think there's still a solid chance for them to get out of the group. And the one thing I will say, it wasn't like they didn't have quality chances. That they didn't. That they, they didn't. They generated some. There was some really poor finishing, and they didn't take enough chances. But they were generating. They had some stuff on the break. I mean, that chance at the end with Lacasse. If she just puts that ball in to like corner someone, they probably score, right? Yeah. So I mean, there were there were opportunities there where goals should have happened. So I'm with you. And hey, listen, you only have three matches, right? And the results matter. We saw it with the men at the World Cup earlier this past year. So I get it. But to me, it wasn't as doom and gloom based on the result between Australia and Ireland and the fact that Canada did generate enough chances to score. They should have scored. So my, my pessimism maybe comes with my expectations coming into the tournament. Yeah. I will agree that some of the doom and gloom that was going through on, on Twitter last night. I mean, hey, uh, I'm happy to see people this invested in, in Canadian soccer. So uh, I'm here oh, for Oh, yeah, we'll it. take it. We'll take we'll, it. We'll yeah. take it when we can mm-hmm. get it. But... Um, the doom and gloom almost feels like you've never watched a World Cup before. You know, getting a point in your first match is still a positive in some respects. Uh, it puts more pressure on your next two matches, but Canada's going to be favored against Ireland, so it's not quite over yet. No team is ever or should be at their best in the first match of a World Cup, so Canada's got to get better. It might put a little bit more pressure on that final match of the group stage against Australia. You'd like to win that match and not finish second in this group because it could make your the rest of your tournament a little bit easier on you. So those are factors that are at play here. But mm-hmm. it's mostly sort of a confirmation bias, I guess, I was looking for in that mm-hmm. I feel like this team is going to have trouble scoring, and I saw a lot of that in this opening match against Nigeria. How much does that change if Christine Sinclair pots that penalty? Maybe a little bit, but you know there was still some of the glaring uh, uh-oh signs that mm-hmm. were there for me in terms of creation and this team's lack of ability to create quality scoring opportunities. And I, I'm, I don't disagree necessarily, but I do wonder if there there are some adjustments that can be made to create a bit more. Yeah, I like to see Quinn get the ball more. Mm-hmm. I mean, she created a couple incredible chances late. I mean, that cross she put in after like you know dubbing a couple of the Nigerian players. You get on top of that, that's a goal as well. So I think there are players. There are players that have quality that can generate that can that can take on somebody and create some space. I think there are some adjustments that can be made. Like like I said, the thing I liked was there is enough quality up front that they can create i just wonder if sometimes they get in their own head like going back to the like cast chance i just don't understand why she didn't pass the ball oh, you know what i mean like, i was I just don't yelling at my television screen ball. last night man she, like... she had to she could either put it around put yeah. it through there were two two of uh, her teammates were there wide open and she just would have got the ball through and if the ball goes through you got a goal right Maybe you win that match one nothing, two nothing, and nobody's saying anything afterwards, yeah. right? So I think there is enough quality here if Bev Priestman can make a couple adjustments. I'd love to see Quinn handle the ball a bit more, get her up wide, maybe get her deeper to get the ball and take some people on. So I think if you make some adjustments, I think there's still a chance they can do something here. But I'm with you. There's very little margin for error now, right? Like, 
you kind of have to win your next match. Like you could draw against Australia, I think, but you got to beat Ireland. Yeah, you've you've got to be Ireland. It's uh, you're going into your next match, and it's somewhat of a um, must win for yeah. Canada moving forward, and that's the tough part about it. There's, you know, there there's been a lot of discussion around the women's team for a while now, and a lot of it is due to the discourse and the disagreements that they are having with the federation and the lack of equal pay and the push for more of an equal footing with the men, especially when they are the program that has set the standard for Canadian soccer for so long in this country. And the men Mm -hmm. just over these last couple of years have finally, uh, you know, burst onto the scene. But, you know, one of their big discussion points isn't just necessarily about the money of it all and the equal pay. That's a large part of it. And it's deserved on a lot of ways. It should be where it's not. But that story, as much as that's been a prominent part of the discourse, it's also that we do not have a professional league for women in Canada Mm -hmm. and how we are losing ground on the rest of the world as they have started to pour more funds into developing the women's side of the game. You're seeing it Spain with their massive win 3 nil. you know, Barcelona and some of the things that Barcelona has done, the way they've dominated the women's game over the last couple of years, how they're selling out the new camp for some massive matches. You know, they've really put a lot into developing the women's side of the game and they're getting a lot out of it. Whereas Canada, you know, 10 years ago, we were at the forefront of the women's game and yet we are starting to fall behind because other countries have made so much more investments into the women's side of the sport and Canada starting to fall behind because there's just not, there's not enough depth. You have to go somewhere else to get developed as a player. And those are things that a lot of people around the women's game have talked about for so long. And I think this might be that world cup where it really starts to show how much ground we are losing. Yeah. And, and I think, I saw uh, a few tweets about you know the the, the doom and gloom, and I, I thought I thought Arash Madani kind of nailed it to some degree when he mentioned you can't the Canadian women can no longer outkick their coverage, and I think that was a really good way of describing what's going on here now with yeah. the lack of support they're getting and the lack of foundational infrastructure that allows them to kind of build up. But more than anything, I mean, they're. They're literally less than 24 hours away from playing their first match in the Women's World Cup, and they're still at, at odds with the Federation over mm-hmm. pay and all that. I mean, how do you allow one of your national teams to get to this type of tournament, to have that type of distraction hanging around them, and have that type of you know bad you know vibes around the team? And sometimes you can rally around those things, you overcome them, and maybe we'll be sitting here and talking about how they face adversity early, and this is what they needed to come together. But at the same time, it's a, such a short tournament that you're one bad result away now from it all being over. And how much of that do you really blame and you put on the bad vibes? Because I can sit here and make an argument. I don't know how much I would actually believe it, but you can make an argument. I would listen to it. If you said, if Canada was a bit more focused against Nigeria, they win that match. Yeah. You could could easily make that argument. You know, so much of their focus has been on, um, you know, other things rather than doing everything they possibly can to prepare for this tournament. Mm -hmm. And I understand that fight, and I understand why they are – going through that with the Federation and it's needed quite frankly, but 
at the same time, it does take away and has taken away from some of the preparations of this tournament. Uh, their next match will come up against Ireland. It's a massive one, as we said, one that is essentially must win after drawing with Nigeria. Matt and Surrey with this take, no disrespect to Christine Sinclair, but if she is the best option for you, taking a penalty at this stage of her career, that pretty much says it all. Now, uh, I get it. Christine Sinclair isn't uh, the best player in the women's game anymore, but I'm not sure there's anybody else on this roster that... I'd want taking that penalty last night. Zat. Maybe you can say Jordan Heidema, but uh, there's just as much as, yes, 40 years old, the one thing that shouldn't take away from Christine is, is her ability to score from the spot. Well, I was going to say, like, if you're if you're expecting, say, Christine to play 90 minutes and her to be the person that's your, you know, focal point and you're trying to, you know, create everything through her, I think that's asking too much, right? If that's how you're playing and that's what you're relying on. But her taking a spot kick? Taking yeah. a penalty kick, that should be that should be money, right? And it happens. I don't care who you are. Even the best penalty kill, the, the penalty takers, they are going to miss every once in a while. These things happen, right? So I mean, I don't I don't think we need to create a narrative here and be like, well, Christine Sinclair, she's over the hill because she missed the penalty. And yeah, she's not the same player she was anymore. I think the issue might be that they may be overly reliant on her playing too much to some degree. I think that's a bit of an issue. But outside of that, I mean, the way I've seen like the team that be set up and her taking penalties. I don't think that's an issue at all. The uh, trend of uh, Canada missing penalties in world cup openers is uh, starting to get a little bit unsettling. First Alfonso Davies. Now Christine Sinclair. I mean, these are just things that can't happen in a world cup set. It's uh, yeah. it's not good for my heart as a Canadian soccer fan. <laughs> no, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. And that was uh, that, that Alfonso Davies miss against Belgium well, I mean, essentially yeah. set the stage for the entire tournament for Canada. And I'll, and I'll say this, Alfonso probably shouldn't have been taking that penalty, yeah. right? But, like, he ran up and took it. Nobody, nobody, you know, got in his way, and he's not really somebody that takes the penalty. The fact that Christine has a confidence to step up and take it, yeah. that's a pretty big thing. So I don't have an issue with the penalty. She just missed the penalty. That happens, right? Like, I have issues with her overall play to some degree. You can't rely on her to play more than – like, is she better off being a super sub than being somebody who starts? Uh, I think if you're Canada, you would probably prefer that at this stage, but I'm yeah. not sure – there's somebody better to take well that's spot. the problem yeah, yeah. And that's the issue i mean and i think that's kind of partially what it. matt is getting to matt and surrey with his with his text maybe not so much from the spot kick point of view but yeah you know that canada still relies so much on christine at this stage of her career is uh, a part of the conversation a couple uh, tough injuries right like yep. somebody texted in fleming she had the acl she's trying to get back right janine becky's you know trying to get to 100 percent. so i mean there there are a couple of injuries that are you know kind of help holding them back up front a little bit um for sure uh so we had this discussion in the uh, bullpen a little bit and i actually threw it out on on twitter because you know people think it's just automatic scoring a penalty uh you know and they, they don't realize well what's what's the scoring rate for a penalty in a, in a professional match it's probably around i think it, last time i checked this it's about 72 73 percent so yeah it's it's still Pretty high. It should, three quarters of the time, it should be in the back of the net. And some players certainly are more automatic than others. But when you take a large data sample of more than just one specific player, you're going to get around 73 to 75%. Um, it's not nearly as automatic as most people think. So 
If I were to give you 10K for free or $100,000 to score a penalty on a top professional goalkeeper, are you taking the 10K or are you taking the five chances to score one penalty on a top professional keeper? I'm scoring. <laughs> score, he's scoring. Wow. Ben doesn't even like, wait. It's not Ben's even... like, no, I'm, I could score this. The for sure. net is so freaking big. <laughs> It's not that big. Have you seen okay, how dude, big it's keepers so big. are? It's massive. I know, but have, have you, you seen, seen how big top professional keepers are? They're like six, seven, most of them. Yeah, dude. All I gotta guys... do is pick the right side once and just hit it hard. Like if if you Christine make it sound Sin- so easy, Ben. If Christine, When's the last Sinclair, time you kicked a soccer ball, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're not getting any well, hold money. Up. If, I know if it Christine Sinclair went the other way yesterday, yeah, the goalie's guessed right. Good for her, and then she made a great save. Good arm strength, whatever. But if Sinclair hit it the other side of the net, it would have been the easiest goal ever. We're like, oh, look how easy that is. So all you got to do is hit it to the side. The goalie's not going to guess. And you think you think you can make the goalie guess the wrong way, Ben? Yes. At least once I'm going to look at one side, and he's yeah. going to think it's going to be reverse psychology. So here's what I'm going to tell you. The goalie, a top professional goalkeeper, is not guessing when you're going up against him. He's going to know what I'm going to do? Yes. No, he's, he'll, wait, no, he'll he's wait waiting. For you, he's yes. waiting for you to see how you're going to tip your hand as to where you're putting the the ball. He he'll probably the the goalie will probably feel pretty good about giving you a half an advantage because they'll be able to still get the ball. Yeah, because you probably won't be able to hit it with enough pace and accuracy to beat him. I get five shots. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm taking the bet all day. <laughs> I mean, if you can if you can pick a corner too. Like, the goalie's just not going to get there. How well do you think you can place a shot, Josh? Well, it's like, not very far. I can, I can place it pretty well. This isn't very far. <laughs> I can place it pretty well. Okay, I will say this. Listen, I have no faith in Ben or Josh doing it. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. But, but, I think I can pull it off. Okay. No, your leg's broken. <laughs> your knees don't do work. Dude. Hey, no, no, no. no. My, my left knee is screwed, right? My left knee is screwed, but I kick on my right. What happens All when I you got, plant your left leg? That's fine. That's fine. I can put a brace on. I can, I, I can, I can work on the plant. And I don't need to do. I don't need to worry about too much on a cut. I can do the plan. Give me five tries. I'll. I'll take. You know what? I have enough confidence in myself that I can. I will chance it on five tries, and I might get one. I don't have faith in Ben or Josh doing it because I don't think they're very good at soccer. <laughs> oh my but... goodness! <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm just taking the 10k. Okay, it's it's not as easy to place the shot as well as you would want to. You know. But 10k is not life changing. You know what I mean? Like 10k is nice. But no, it but like it's change nice. Anything? Taking you know? the 10k is a coward. <laughs> well, it is. Listen. It is. Yeah, I could just use the 10k. I know I could put it to good use. I'll turn that 10k into 100k. Just give me enough time with it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, <laughs> I have less confidence in that. Yeah. Than I have yeah. confidence in 100%. me making one of these shots. Yeah. Dan, the watch guy, uh, who we had, who we had the pleasure of meeting at the. Um, at the young, not the yep. young stars, at the um, development camp, it? development scrimmage. camp scrimmage, right? And he says, "Former goalie here. Goalies can tell. You just have to look at the inside of your knee, which way it's turned. That's the giveaway." Dan, the watch guy. I would do like the the hop skip, and see if I can get the goalie. Oh, to Sats one putting way in the stutter it. step. Even more yeah. reason why you're going to lose. I think that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a bad move. Apparently, I'm the only rational one here. I'm talking a top professional goalkeeper here, okay? Give me five tries. I, you know what? I'm not saying I could score for sure, but I, I feel good enough that I'll take the gamble. Uh, Snoop the dog, pick left versus right, 50% chance of a goal. If it was only that easy. Look, <laughs> I would tell you, honestly, your, your first mistake is you're trying to place it. Just go up oh, there and 100%. hit it as hard as you can. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I would do. That's it. That's your best shot at scoring. Don't try to place it. Just hit it as hard as you can. And I'm it, like, I'm picking left or right. 
but I'm kicking it as hard as I can left or right. Have you have you ever kicked a penalty on a bit on a soccer net before? Yes. Yeah. You yeah, have okay. Yeah. I will, like I'm not I'm it? not even joking. Like I didn't I didn't play like competitive <laughs> soccer, but when soccer was played, I was I held my own against the ones that did. We need to have like a field day so we can do like Josh's field goals and <laughs> no, penalty man. kicks. You can tell when something like I mean, no, I want to kick man, the ball. I would around, love which... to do this as a video with like the I white would. caps or something. We should. I'm down. Let's I'm get down. the two of us out here. We can look at sad. Yeah. Like told honestly, you. like told we should you. do this for social one day. We should set it up with like. I don't know, one of the Caps goalkeepers. and see, uh, it, Probably it, doesn't have to be the best one. Do we get the money, too? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, we don't get the money. <laughs> no. We just get to say if we completed it or not. I don't think any of us are scoring, to be honest with you. I think you have, you got to go with confidence. <laughs> like, you got to think you're going to score. I think I would I find know. out real quick after the first shot. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, wait. Oh, wait, yeah. It's, I think it's, it's, it is a lot harder than people think, though. Uh, it is distance is the think. distance between me and Riccio right now. There's yeah. a, there's actually a whole book on this. Um, it, I, I'm going to struggle to find the title of it, but I'll find it in the break. Uh, a whole book on just the psychology and the strategy that goes into taking a penalty, and it's way more than people would initially think of just, oh, just go up and, and hit the thing. <laughs> well, it's like Snoop. It's not the way Snoop the dog said. Fifty percent chance yeah. of it going in by picking a side. It's not quite that easy. Fifty percent of the time, it works every time. And a yeah. goalkeeper has generally done their homework, especially when they they're going into a tournament like this. And the Nigeria keeper would have done her homework on you know Christine Sinclair's last ten penalties and where she tried to place it and things of that nature. But if you're good at taking a penalty, um, like Sebastian Javinko, his first like fifteen penalties he took. In MLS, we're all bottom left corner, and he scored every time. So that would be yeah. me. See? There's no homework and, on Josh and but, I. And the yeah. keeper even knew he would go that way, and he'd still score. No one uh, knows well, what's coming. Yeah. Have you guys played, like, team? Like, have you been on a team soccer team before we've played? Yeah. Actually? Okay. Yeah. Oh. Right, so maybe Ben has. Ben. Maybe, 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 I'm, maybe I'm shortchanging Ben a little bit here. He's a great school. athlete. Yeah. You played high school soccer, Josh? Yeah, not for, like... The Chilliwack team, but I would school team. see the thing is like I would bet Ben could put the most pace on the ball of all of us. Respects because he's like six two. Well, and he's I'm you know he's that working those hips on the on the golf course all the time, yeah. right? He can uh, rotation. He, yeah, he knows he knows how to get the lower body into it and get some actual pace behind him. The entire Josh plan has to be to hit it as hard as possible. Yes. Get a text. I'm not sure Josh would have a chance scoring on Halford. <laughs> <laughs> Halford would know. Halford would be a great person to ask. Honestly, I if Halford's in net, I'm scoring at least twice out of the five. At least twice. At least I, I was about at to say twice. three, and then I was like, you know what? That might be bold. <laughs> Josh has been working out a lot, though. He's doing doing a lot of squats, so he yeah. might have more power in those shots. Yeah, yeah. But it's more about technique, you know. It is. It's not about how hard you hit it necessarily. It's placement, and if you can get the goalie moving, which is impossible, it's it's going to be impossible for you to trick a goalie. Yeah. So it's you know, show how many shootout attempts is it going to take for you to score on an NHL goalie? <laughs> <laughs> or what that one I'm not even taking on the ice. If yeah. they're actually trying, oh man, I'm probably I'm not scoring. At least like a hundred. <laughs> You like they would have to make a mistake for you to score. Yeah, <laughs> the intimidation alone would just get me. You know, like, um, yeah, it's it's probably not happening. Maybe once out of a hundred. As a non-soccer person, what's a respectable like? What's a good percentage for converting? For converting, oh, if you're if you're above eighty-five percent and you've taken like, and the data sample's pretty large, you're a pretty good PK taker. So yeah. if I'm at 20%. Yeah. 
That's, that's horrible, but I scored <laughs> once. If you're 25% in the shootout, like that's in in a in NHL. Yeah, in a hockey shootout, yeah, definitely. If you're 25%, you're basically uh, UC Okanen, and uh, teams are just bringing you yeah. on to be a specialty shootout, <laughs> yeah. a shootout specialist. Uh, but those guys don't exist as much anymore. No, no, it's changed. Uh, all right, coming up, Keegan Matheson is going to join us. Uh, Blue Jays reporter for MLB.com. The plan ahead of the deadline and what to expect this weekend with the Blue Jays in Seattle. That's coming up on the People Show. Missing the Canucks? Subscribe to the Canucks Central podcast and get alerts for breaking news episodes. Daily shows return in September. People show in the Kintec studio. Be a part of the Jays Care Celebrity Golf Classic through the online silent auction. Bid on round trip flights for two, a Whistler getaway, and a Canucks VIP experience with Halford and Bruff. Visit jayscaregolf.ca for more details to make your bids. Auction closes July 27th with proceeds supporting Challenger Baseball BC. Uh, let's bring in our Next guest, it is Keegan Matheson, MLB.com, covering the Toronto Blue Jays as they make their way to Seattle at T-Mobile Park tonight. The uh, Canadian invasion of Seattle begins this weekend. What's happening, Keegan? Hey, guys. Good to be here. How's everybody doing? Uh, we are, uh, we're doing pretty well and uh, getting ready for uh, what should be a good weekend for the Blue Jays in Seattle. I mean, at least the way the Mariners are going, it's uh, not looking – so pretty, but uh, the Blue Jays, you know, as as much as the season has uh, yielded a decent record to this point at fifty four and forty three, it's still seems like there's always more questions about where this team is headed than there is answers uh, uh, with this team. Keegan, is that is that the way it uh, lines up for you going into the trade deadline as well? Yeah, it's never felt as good as the the record shows, probably because. So many of these wins have been one good inning and eight uh, less good innings. And so many of the inconsistencies have prevented this team from going on a real run, like one of those real eight, ten game winning streaks, or even forming much of a clear and true identity. As you know, The Blue Jays are the team that does blank. I don't know how to fill in that blank quite yet, and we're about 100 games in. So there have been frustrations uh, along the way. But that also speaks to the talent level on this team. If you can have that many inconsistencies and still be in this position, that means you have a lot of talent. You just need that talent to be moving in the same direction, which is what they'll try to use the deadline in these next few weeks for. But a a strange season, just a very strange season so far for this team. And The thing that, that this season makes me really think about a lot is Baseball doesn't care about sometimes how good your team is and what you deserve because you can make the case that how the, how they approach at the plate and that they haven't really had as much luck perhaps. Is that something that we're going to find out, you think, here over the final 65 or six games, 66 games or so that maybe their positive differentials, which if you ask anybody within the organization, they say, hey, we feel like this is going to come around because our differentials are better than people think. Yeah, that's, that's a big narrative this season, whether mm. it be – with exit velocities for players and some of their batted ball expected numbers, whether that even be recently, Alec Manoa's last start being not as bad as the stat line showed. 
they only count what happens on the field, unfortunately. And this league is full of teams who are overachieving. This league is full of players who are overachieving and putting together better numbers than the fancy stats might suggest. So it's a tough place to be in because if it's going to happen soon, when is soon? We're 100 games in almost in this season. Soon has to happen right away for the Blue Jays. And you can't keep waiting on those underlying metrics to come out into the light and be reality because the reality has been showing a bit of a different story for the Blue Jays. I think Vladdy is a great example. He is hitting the ball so hard. He is hitting the ball in the air. The single most important number for him, I thought going into the season, was his launch angle. Ground ball versus fly ball, that's the whole difference for Vladdy. It's been in the air, but he's still not quite there. So at this point, I think the Blue Jays are who they are. They are who their record shows. They are what their average, their OPS, their everything is right now. I think you still just bet on the talent if you're the Blue Jays, or you hope on the talent because put this team on paper next to most teams, and my goodness, the names they have is incredible. But at the same time, you don't want to waste that. You don't want to look back 10 years from now and say, remember all of those players on that 2023 team, just like that 2021 team? Remember all of those names that didn't quite get there? So that's what you've got to avoid. You know, you mentioned Vladdy Guerrero and his uh, OPS now at 793 for the season. He wins the home run derby. He is... You know, you talk about the batted balls and, and you know, still the guy with the, the best exit velo in the league. And, you know, it seems like he's always going to be that player. But at the same time, you know, this is it's kind of been the same story for Vladdy. Even, you know, you got to go all the way back to the playing in Dunedin and Buffalo days to, to see the, the Vladdy that we would have considered a, an MVP candidate in the league. Which version of Vladdy Guerrero are the Blue Jays going to get in the second half? Yeah, Vladdy is talented enough to be the best hitter in this league. We know that. We saw it for all of 2021, and you've seen it for a game or two at a time this last month. There have been a few times, guys, where I have really thought he's all the way back. And I'm not usually someone who jumps to that very easily. I'm pretty stubborn, but he has looked all the way back with that home run swing, with his mentality. And I think his personality matters more than any hitter on this team. Just him being joyful on the field, him being relaxed and loose. You can't measure that with an analytic, but it matters so much for Vladdy. And I thought it was there, and then it's not the next day. It's a really tough thing to make sense of, honestly, because the at-bats in between those home runs have looked completely different. And it's a lot like we talked about with the expected numbers versus the numbers we see the reality of Vladdy is that for his debut year for 2020 and then for the last couple of seasons, he has been closer to this kind of low 800s OPS hitter. That 2021 season right now is a peak season. I know he is better than what he is showing right now, but the reality of the numbers is that he has not matched that whatsoever this season. He is far too talented to be a 780 to 790 OPS hitter. Lots of time to turn that around this season and finish strong. I, I think that is in there. But you've got to see it consistently, not just in those flashes. Well, and, you know, I think part of the confusion or part of the um, confounding part of the season for me is you have two more years of Vladdy control. You have two more years of Bo Bichette being under contract beyond this season. And where you are this season are they going to be aggressive enough at the trade deadline? Like, at what point does Atkins and Shapiro look at this and say, 
we might only have like two more runs at this because you get to the final years of their contracts. Who knows what happens at that point? Should they be aggressive with this squad right now, or do you kind of just put all your chips into the final two years of their contracts? I really think you try to be as aggressive as you can right now without wasting these next couple of years. You know, the Blue Jays in recent years, let's look at Jose Barrios, look at Whit Merrifield, Mitch White, Ross Stripling, Adam Simber, Zach Pop. These are all names that have been acquired via trade. All of them have had extra team control on it. So I think that's something the Blue Jays would like to target if they can. You can get better this year while staying good next year. And the way this roster is built, even if you sell off a couple of your very top prospects, other than, let's say, Brandon Belt, Matt Chapman leaving could be a big one, but the Blue Jays have the core here. You have Springer, you have Varsho, you have those core pieces along with Vladdy and Bo, Danny Jansen, some of the young core. These opportunities just don't come around all that often. Look at the mid-90s up until those 2015 runs. That's two decades of stuck in the middle which is the worst place to be in baseball, stuck in that 75-win middle ground. When you get these opportunities, you have to push in. There has to be a year where you're not just trying to incrementally improve and complement your roster. You are saying, what the hell, let's go for it. You know, the Blue Jays did that big time in 15 and 16. Didn't work, and it's not always going to work. But eventually there has to be the year where you really believe in your talent and really push for it because – This team, I think back to the 21 team, there's just too much talent on these teams to not be doing something with it. And even if they can sneak in on this third, second, third wild card, another couple of wild card games, that doesn't do anything for anyone. I don't think that excites anybody at this point. They need to be aiming higher and trying to get much deeper than just a quick wild card series. Where is that biggest uh, need for improvement? Is it in the lineup with a, with another bat, or is it in the in the starting rotation? I see it in the lineup right now. Uh, just a bit of an edge over the rotation. Now, the Blue Jays sound like they want a veteran right-handed bat. It doesn't matter, I don't think, what position they play, because the Blue Jays are flexible. You have the Merrifields, the Espinals, etc., who can play anywhere. So who cares where this bat plays? They just need to help this lineup hit some lefties, come up in big moments, play some DH, play a bit of the field. However that works, we'll see. But this lineup needs to be shaken up just a little bit. The Blue Jays are in a spot where I don't think you are going to be moving on from an Alejandro Kirk, a Dalton Varsho type, because their numbers aren't good, but the Blue Jays need those guys long-term. It's a tough, awkward place. But you need to add a piece that helps this lineup somehow. The Blue Jays have not used their last bench spot at all this year. Nathan Lucas, Jordan Luplo have barely been in there. It's been pretty unique. You've got to do something more valuable with that spot and try to open up this offense a little bit because this is not the type of production you should be seeing from these names. Yeah, and you know what? Like, I I agree that the ideal addition would be that type of a bat, like a legit big-time bat. But in terms of maybe doing something that's not quite as exciting, but if you do shore up your defense, you shore up maybe get a couple more arms, can you can you maybe talk yourself into thinking that you have good enough defense, good enough pitching to make up for maybe the lack of production in your, in your lineup when, you, when it comes to playoff time? There is a way it could work that way, and I think that the Blue Jays right now, in terms of their starting rotation, 
would be looking a little more on the depth side. Now, depth can mean a, a number four, five, six, seven starter, but you're not going after an ace, for example. They have Kevin Gossman. They have Jose Barrios, who has pitched very well this year. Chris Bassett's a, a good mid-rotation starter there. We'll see what happens with Alec Manoa and Hunjin Ryu. Those are two major variables. I think if you get one of those guys pitching good enough to be in an MLB rotation, you're happy, and you've got five-ish starting pitchers. We'll see. But come postseason time, you are relying so heavily on the best of your best. You are not exactly using that number eight reliever all that often. You are using your first few starters. You're using Romano. You are using Eric Swanson. You're using Jimmy Garcia. You're using Tim Meza. You're not going into your depth that much. So I'm not sure the Blue Jays are going to find a way to really raise the ceiling of their rotation, maybe the bullpen, but the rotation might be more of a depth situation, adding depth-wise. And that rotation has been pretty good so far. I just think it's about shoring up their depth because all season long, that depth has just not been there whatsoever. They've been very fortunate to avoid more injuries. What can we expect from Hinjin Ryu, and do you think they'll go to a six-man rotation? It would be a hell of a story if he could come back and do something here because when he signed prior to 19, he was the, the piece that came earlier than I expected. Or prior to 20, I apologize. He was the big move we knew was coming, but maybe a year early. And that really announced the Blue Jays as a team that was in a new era of their competitive window. He had that great season out of the gates, but the injury, I think, really affected him even before the surgery uh, last year. If he can come back and give the Blue Jays a low four ERA, that is fantastic. You know, that's good enough. That allows him to be in that rotation. I do think the Blue Jays would go to a six-man rotation temporarily. They've got a stretch coming up in early to mid-August of, I think, 17 games in 17 days. So, shift into a six-man for a couple of trips through, whether that's with Alec Manoa and Kikuchi in there, maybe you add another starter and you try a six-man. And at the end of those 17 days, you either pick your five best or, more realistically, something will go wrong along the way. These things do tend to figure themselves out in baseball. And looking down the road three, four weeks from now, surely something will change. But I do think the six-man is going to be part of that plan as long as it keeps moving in this direction. And as far as what you can do with the lineup, and we know Orelvis Martinez has been lighting it up uh, in the minor leagues. Is there any chance that there is somebody internally that they want to bring up here to see if they can do something um, in, in after August if they don't add that bat at the deadline? Yeah, into August, you can start forgetting about development. You, know, you, you mentioned Orelvis Martinez has been fantastic the last few months, just promoted to AAA. Addison Barger has been really good lately. Uh, he's playing mostly third and shortstop, starting to play a bit of the outfield. He was kind of the darling of spring training, really got a lot of hype, hits the ball hard, big arm in the field. John Schneider liked to make fun of the, uh, the small T-shirts he would wear that looked like they were painted on, but he's in great shape. He's a great athlete and is another name that I think could help the Blue Jays line up in a complementary role as a lefty bat. And by August, by the middle of August, you're not as worried about them losing out on playing time coming up into the big leagues. You can find that elsewhere. That is an option, probably more of a backup option for the Blue Jays, but both Martinez and Barger 
Earlier in the season, it was not good. Right now, it's very good with both of them. So they've both, credit to them, put themselves in position to be considered uh, into August. So Alec Manoa slated to pitch uh, Sunday's matchup against the Seattle Mariners at T-Mobile Park. Uh, You know, the last start wasn't as good as the first start back up in the majors. uh, But what do we make of how he's coming along after the awful start to the season? Yeah, the, the Blue Jays have been happy with what he's doing lately. But like we spoke about earlier, you need to see results. At this point of the year, you can't have all that much patience for, oh, it's going to get better, it's getting better. It needs to be good right now. You're in a playoff race. So the Blue Jays really need Alec Manoa. And if he can get back to that old form, A, it would be one of the best stories of the season, but B, it would solve a lot of problems for this Blue Jays team. And this is a big start, guys. You don't make decisions based on one game, but the Blue Jays need to know what type of starting pitcher they have to add. Are they looking for a legitimate rotation guy, or are they looking for a number six, number seven, the guy that's going to round out their depth group? You need to know exactly who Alec Manoa is first. I don't know that answer right now. Long term, absolutely believe in Alec Manoa. What he did last year was not an accident. But you're talking about the next six or eight weeks. Is he going to get it back at the big league level over these next six or eight weeks? Or is that an offseason thing? This is a big, big start for him in Seattle, as big as he's had all season. And it's going to have some real implications, I think, on the Blue Jays' strategy. Now, I just had one more question for me, and it has to do with John Schneider, who picked up his 100th career win as a Blue Jays manager already. And, you know, when it comes to managers in baseball, I think sometimes the discussions around the job they do and what they don't do is a bit over-exaggerated. But how do you feel about John Schneider's jobs, what he's done so far? And maybe the most important thing that a that a manager is in charge of is handling his bullpen and handling his starting rotation. How confident do Jays fans feel with John Schneider at the helm? I think confident at this point. You know, there have been bumps along the way. You know, think back earlier in the year where there was that snafu with the multiple mound visits where Manoa had to leave early. There have been a couple mm-hmm. of bumps. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I think people should be confident in the job overall, though, because a lot of a manager's job is managing personalities, I think, at this point. That's something John Gibbons did very well when he was in Toronto with those teams that were full of uh, very big personalities, uh, let's say. He knew when to stay out of the way, when to insert himself. With John Schneider, you see a good relationship with that young core who he came up with through the minor leagues. Uh, but also the veterans and how he manages them. Uh, it's the reason that you know each year voting on MLB awards, I will vote for anything. I hate voting for manager of the year. I despise it because looking around the league, I don't know which managers are doing what. And even on the team you cover, it's difficult to know exactly who is doing what at which time. Bullpen decisions, rotation decisions based on workload or in-game moves, So much of that is predetermined. So much of that is mapped out with input from the front office and the thousand analytics employees these teams have now. So I judge managers based on how they manage personalities, teams, and internal stuff. And I think you've seen John Schneider handle that well so far. But more importantly, I think you're seeing a manager who is growing and developing. And when you do hit those bumps, uh, an ability to say, hey, that was wrong, screwed up, let's learn from it. Keegan, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for this. You got it, guys. Take care. Uh, There's Keegan Matheson, Blue Jays reporter for MLB.com.
Blue Jays and Seattle Mariners coming up this weekend. We'll get the Mariners side of the story coming up a little bit later on Mm -hmm. as Ryan Divish will join us. Uh, As for right now, I'm sure there's uh, plenty of uh, Jays fans or people excited to go down to the ballpark waiting at the line to get through the border. And uh, if you are there right now, I'm not sure you're making it for first pitch (laughs) Uh, with the way traffic is going. Yeah, I mean, hey, uh, hopefully you you got ahead of it and uh, you find your way there, anyways. And hey, listen, you can better late than never. Yeah. So at least at least as long as you get to the ballpark, that that should be okay. Uh, we got this text from Dex. He says, "Is it just me, or does Keegan remind you of Chris Faber?" I think there are some similarities, yes. like in terms of Keegan. But I would say like Keegan's been, and I'm not saying this to anything negative because we we love Chris Faber. But I, I would say Keegan might say, "Well, I've been I've been in the game a little bit longer. Maybe Faber." Maybe uh, Faber reminds you of Keegan instead of the other way. Yeah, that could uh, that could be one way to uh, to definitely look at it. Uh, There's some similar, but I will say both are beauties. I had a chance to meet Keegan. I know you've met Keegan, too, yep. working in Toronto. I've, I've met him a few times. Really super guy, just, just like Chris. Uh, so uh, Blue Jays, Mariners, uh, we'll have all three games on the station this weekend. Tonight's uh, pitching matchup is Yusei Kikuchi, who's uh, remarkably 7-3 and three this year, against uh, Bryce Miller. Six and three for the Seattle Mariners at three sixty six ERA. Uh, this is uh, kind of the the story of the weekend. Is uh, for, like the Blue Jays are trying to still find their best selves, but are pretty comfortable in their playoff positioning. Whereas the Mariners, like they need to go on an unbelievable heater now through the back end of the season to get into the play. Well, maybe not an unbelievable heater, but they got to play really good baseball through the back end of the season to make sure they get to the postseason if they want to get to the postseason for a second straight year. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. I think that's something that they absolutely uh, have to improve on. And I think when, you know, just in general too, uh, about what happens in, in the final third of the season, how, how much unexpected, how many unexpected results do you expect to see? Because we always talk about this when we get to the 100 game mark. It's like, oh, we know who's going to make the playoffs now. And, and, and invariably, somebody gets hot for yeah. the final, you know, 50, 60 games here, right? Maybe they, you know, they pull things off. I think Seattle, as much as they're 500, their differentials aren't bad. Like, you can talk yourself into that they maybe do a bit of a run. You look at the Blue Jays, you can make the same argument. So, as much as it looks pretty dire for a couple of these teams a little bit, like, it's, it's still like, like 60. I think the Mariners have, what, 67 games remaining? Yeah. The Jays have, what, 65 games remaining? Like, a lot can still happen the rest of the season. Uh, you need a you need a hot streak to start at some point, uh, yeah. especially if you're the Mariners. But uh, the biggest issue for them, similar teams uh, in a way, where uh, the Jays' issues have mostly been on the offensive side of the ball. They've pitched pretty well. The bullpen has been uh, pretty good this year for the most part. Um, same goes for the Mariners, right? Like they have uh, none of their regulars have an over 800 APS, OPS. Like, not Julio Rodriguez, not Teoscar Hernandez, J.P. Crawford. Any of these guys have not had the seasons that would you would have hoped they would have to follow up what they did last year. So that's kind of where it's at with the Mariners right now. And I'm sure, you know, there'll be a lot of takes for Mariners fans as, you know, the Blue Jays fans uh, take over T-Mobile Park. Last year it was – you know, it started to be a little bit more of a 50-50 thing where because yeah. the Mariners were good, there was more people on the bandwagon. I wonder if uh, we get back to a little bit of what we saw pre-pandemic where it was, you know, Blue Jays fans invading Seattle for most of the series. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, 
I'm kind of tired of the whole Mariners versus Blue Jays wars and whatever it is, right? But I do expect the the Jays fans to be out there in full force. And you're right, like the Mariners fans have been a lot better this year. I think their attendance has been uh, seventh in the in the AL, which is a huge jump from them. They were they're up to like 28 or 29 thousand fans per game, which is significant. It's a good jump for them, right? But I still think. Jays fans will still probably be as strong as they normally are, and the tickets get sold for more, so people that have will resell their tickets for these yeah. games. So I think for for all the talk about fans getting upset that you know Jays fans, so many of them show up, it's like, well, that's the weekend for a lot of Mariners fans who have season tickets to maybe make some money back on their tickets. You know, so it's it's a, it's a hard thing to pass up on sometimes. It's like, well, hey, all these Jays fans are coming, we can sell our tickets for you know 100% premium, and usually can't do that in Seattle if you have season season tickets because you can always find tickets that are available. So you you refuse to to line up for anything. Is there yes. like um there so there's no chance you would even try to get over the border this weekend? Oh hell no! I have Nexus though, so oh, um, I, so I mean boy. I would not travel with somebody who doesn't have Nexus. I mean yeah. I would. I can meet you on the other side if you leave earlier. So we can go together. But there the, we go. the The border wait is so long right now. You probably have to <laughs> wait to get into the Nexus line. That's how Even long the Nexus line yeah. has a wait. I'm sure it does. But I don't mind waiting in the Nexus line because usually you get through on it. Like yeah. it's, it's worth doing it. And um, they're way more chill. Like, what's the game are. plan? <laughs> I literally got asked when the Seahawks game. The guy was like, so what's the game plan? Yeah. Like going to the Seahawks game is like, have fun. Well, exactly. Because, I, mean, I mean, they've already checked. They have all your information. Yeah. I kind of wonder if they have a chip on those things anyways. They can track you wherever you are. So it's like, I mean, if, if you got Nexus, you're probably okay. So they probably shouldn't harass you too much. Yeah. But. You're waiting. I have been harassed at the border a lot, though. I, I think at say. the Peace Arch, you're waiting at least two hours already. Saw someone post that at a Pacific border crossing. It was over three hours. Oh my goodness! No thanks. Not doing it. Uh, but uh, to those that are, Godspeed, and uh, should be a fun weekend with the Blue Jays in Seattle, and also all the Swifties heading down to Seattle as well as uh, some of our texters from earlier in the show saying. Taylor Swift songs, they still slap. Uh, yep. That's Ryan on the road. <laughs> Shouts to Ryan, who's just you know smashing all the Taylor Swift tracks on uh, on Spotify right now as he's on the road. It's enjoy, have it, fun. Yeah, uh, Karma, I think is the the latest one. I don't know. Is it? I have no idea. Like I said, I'm not. I don't like. I know some. Like if I hear some Taylor Swift songs, <laughs> like I'll know what they are and they're fine or whatever. But. Yeah, I'm not, and I'm not crapping on it. I, don't get me wrong; like, I'm not one of the people who's like, "Oh, like, I don't understand this." Outside of Oasis, this, that's the only band I like. To Here crap we on. go. Yeah. Outside of Oasis, <laughs> smashing on Oasis again. You missed that show, Josh. I heard. I I was in the car, I think, and you guys were just talking about Oasis, and I was like, I I'm out. I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, Oasis. I said Oasis is overrated. We we're doing overrated, underrated. And I said Radiohead is significantly sad. Than Oasis. I don't think Josh even knows who Radiohead is. I know. <laughs> of I, I he know does. of them. Couldn't name a song. Uh, all right, coming up. Uh, Whitecaps made a big trade yesterday. Well, it's. Uh, in the works still. I don't think it's uh, been made official as of just yet. Uh, Whitecaps having to trade away Julian Gressel uh, as in the midst of a really strong season that they've had and a really key part to their roster. We'll get J.J. Adams' take on that. And the BC Lions opening up the upper bowl for the Rough Riders this weekend. We'll get to J.J. Adams for that as well. It's coming up next on Sports at 650. It's the People's Show on Sports at 650. We're in the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech. 
Net. Lots still to get to on the program. Um, this text on our discussion of uh, if you could score on a top goalkeeper in the world from the penalty spot. Uh, G tweeting in, tell your coworkers they will get zero for 25. You'd go 0 for 25 against the top goalie in MLS and 0 for 50 against any top goalie in Europe. Take the 10K. There you go, Sam. That's fair enough. Fair enough. I don't mind. I, don't, I mean, hey, that's fair enough. I'm still taking the chance. <laughs> taking the chance. All right. I'm let's still bring, taking the chance. Let's see what our next guest uh, would say. It's uh, <laughs> J.J. Adams, the Vancouver Sun and the province joining us. If you were given five chances to score from the penalty spot against a top goalkeeper, would you score once? I don't care who it is. I would score. It doesn't matter. Out of boy. I'm sorry. There we go. The, the physics behind it, for anyone who's played uh, soccer, and I play soccer to a, to a decent level, you know, the physics behind it, you, you put your foot into it and you place it in the right spot, you're going to score. I mean, I, I, it doesn't matter who you are. The hair, it doesn't matter. You're going to score. I'm taking, give me the money. Give me the chance. I'm going to score. Now, you... See, JJ played. Oh. See, so since JJ played, he has that confidence of playing. He knows, right? I'm with JJ. Yeah. I was a striker, too. I was a goal scorer. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> I, uh, I played fullback. <laughs> I just, maybe I have too much respect for uh, professional goalkeepers. I'm not scoring. I know it. Or maybe you just, I don't know, <laughs> did you, I don't, I don't want to call you out, Dan, but did you, did you, did you play soccer? Of course did I did. Football? And I even see. though you played, like, uh, up to what level are we talking? Like, you know, grade Eight? <laughs> I, mean, I feel like I feel like if you played in your teenage years, you'd be able to. You'd be confident. That oh man, play. I just don't think people. I, I think most people think they can place a ball better than uh, than they think they actually can. So man, I just I just watched a video. Liverpool did it. They had like you know people come out to the training ground and try and score, and then they had like the top two guys go to the end and, and do it at Anfield, and both of them scored. And I think the one guy went away with like fifty k. So. Psh. Come on, man. All right. Well, that's one guy in Liverpool. I don't know. Um, (laughs) uh, All right, JJ. So things about the Whitecaps, like it's – this always seems to be the thing with the Vancouver Whitecaps, right? Like you you get a little bit positive about something. They're on a good run. Ryan Gold's playing about as as well as as you could – as well as any player in the league almost. At at an MVP level, Vanny Sartini told me last week. And now this week they are forced into a trade of one of their top players, Julian Gressel, and he's going to the Columbus crew in a deal that uh, Manuel Veth, our friend, uh, says is going to be worth 850000 GAM. We'll not get into the semantics of what that actually means for the layman, but this uh, it's a tough spot for the Whitecaps to lose one of their best players. Yeah, and it's, it's you know it's the second time in, in three years that they've lost – one of their top players who have who have asked out with the you know Max Kripo, you know asking for a trade before the start of uh, I think it was a 22 season um, or 21 season, and, and, and now Julian Gressel wanting to wanting out also for personal reasons for family reasons wanting to be back on the East Coast. Um, I, I haven't seen the Columbus side of this uh, from what I've seen so far. Uh, it doesn't include an extension for Gressel. So he might just be there for the next, you know, 10, 15 games and then out of there, in which case it's a very expensive rental for Columbus and, and well done uh, to the Whitecaps to get 
basically the same amount of Garber bucks that they paid for him, you know, just a year ago. I think they paid 900,000 uh, in GAM to DC United to, to bring him on board. Um, but again, like, like you said, we're seeing, you know, uh, a top player leave the team as they're trying to, to hold on to that final playoff berth to, to, to claw their way into the postseason. It's been a, a rare trip to the, to the playoffs for the, the Whitecaps, as, as you know, as we know, as we talked about many times over the years, um, it, for them to get, to get back to the postseason, it would be a rare thing. And losing Gressel it, is not going to help that cause. No, I mean, it's a rough one to take considering how well he's played. But, I, I, I mean, personally, I can't be upset with the Whitecaps selling a guy who's in the final year of his deal. You know, they're not guaranteed to make the postseason. But I would love to see them use their assets now to bring somebody else in. Like, can you afford to not at least somewhat replace him or bring somebody else in here to make sure you make the playoffs? Because it's tough, man, to go year in and year out. You get close, then you lose a guy, then you don't make the playoffs. Like, at what point do you push your way in? Yeah, I mean... They they do need to bring someone in. I don't know if they need to bring in an exact replacement for for Yulin Gressel. Um, Ali Ahmed has been you know outstanding in his time this year. You know, homegrown player uh, from the second team, it's, rose his way up the ranks, and we saw him you know become a darling for Team Canada in his debut. So they they've got a guy that can kind of fill uh, that role, that that number eight role that uh, that Gressel was playing. I think they they definitely need some help um, center back depth. Um, maybe more fullbacks, more wingbacks. I think that's where they need the help. Um, so they've got a, a few more days to do it. I think the uh, the window for the, the secondary window closes on the second for them to bring in someone from another country or to make a trade within MLS. So the, the window's closing. They got a little money to do it. I I don't know if they will. They 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 might. They they have not been super active. They feel that they have a, a decent team. Um, and I actually wrote this is probably the, the best Whitecaps team in, in history in terms of talent, and yet there they are, you know, the battling for the final playoff spot in the West and an expanded uh, playoff qualification process. So um, they, they need some help. I don't know if they'll get it. Um, I, I hope they do because, you know, this city is starved for, for a winner. We're, we can't talk about the Canucks – their their wonderful seasons, uh, you know, over and over. We need we need some positivity. So let's go, uh, Whitecaps. Let's do something. Let's make the postseason. Bring in some help. Let's make a run. Yeah, they they're going to need something. It's it would feel like a lot of pressure to put on Ali Ahmed to just like step into to those shoes. And this is essentially, you know, what's made the Whitecaps uh, fun this year and and actually helped them in the standings. Is you know they create a lot, right? That's that's been their thing. They give up a lot, but creating a lot is, is also uh, a, a good thing. And I, I just wonder, you know, are you putting more pressure on Ryan Gold now to, to remain at this MVP level that he's played at recently in order to keep the results flowing in? Because they just, they just don't defend well enough, JJ. That's absolutely true. They, they, they don't. Um, but, you know, asking uh, young Ali to, to, to fill in and replace Julian, I think, is, is definitely that, – that's a, that's a bridge too far for, for a young player. But I think he can come in and, and definitely be uh, satisfactory, adequate, and has the potential to get better. Um, after all, they beat LAFC on the road, you know, their first road win in a calendar year, and they did it without Julian Gressel. So a, a lot of their success comes from when they are 
being very uh, aggressive in their, you know, uh, their press, you know, ha- have a high line, really force teams into, into mistakes. And, uh, you know, with, with Ryan Gold and, and Brian White up there kind of spearing that, uh, triggering that, that pressure, I think that's where their success comes from. Uh, there, there's no replacing some of the crossing and passing that, that Julian brought to the team, but definitely I think they can, they can still have success without him. And like you said, it's all about the defending. Uh, let's, let's work on our set piece defending, please. Danny Sartini, <laughs> yeah. if you're listening, let's work on our set piece defending. I know you love the zonal system, but uh, it's, it's caused you some problems. Um, we, if they can shore up those defensive breakdowns and, you know, maybe see Sergio, Sergio Cordova finally come into form, you know, maybe they can start sort of making their way up that ladder in the West. Now, zooming out on the MLS a little bit here, I mean, uh, Lionel Messi is, is expected to make his debut here for Inter-Miami. And, you know, there's been a lot of, obviously, excitement about him making his debut. And one of the things that kind of, like, dawned on me a bit more today was, this is fantastic, right? I mean, we see a lot of great attention being brought in. But unless you buy the MLS package, who gets to watch Messi play? <laughs> And how much does that actually help? I know it helps, right? It helps you sell subscriptions. But in terms of, like, capturing the imagination of the average fan, it almost seems like a missed opportunity not being able to show it to a wider audience. Well, that was the whole point behind the Apple deal was to create a wider audience, to create a global audience for MLS and not just restrict it to the domestic, uh, you know, broadcasters. You know, anyone in the world now can watch MLS, which – wasn't really the case before. If they want to watch, uh, you know, uh, Real Salt Lake take on Houston Dynamo and, and someone in Russia wants to do that, they can. So I think that's the thinking behind the Apple deal. And now that Messi's here, those Apple numbers are going to skyrocket. I mean, we saw what it did with his, just like, just enter Miami's social feeds. I think they jumped like, you know, double digits of millions of followers in a matter of days once he signed with the team. That's the kind of interest and profile that this league needs. And now that with the Apple deal, you know, there's going to be a lot more eyes on this league. And that's, you know, that's what they, they were hoping for. That's what they wanted. That's why they've made so many concessions to, to Miami to allow them to, to sign Messi and, you know, tell all the teams in the league with turf, well, you know, hey, you're going to have to put grass on if you want Messi to play. Um, those are the, the kind of concessions they were willing to make to have Messi in to help get them to that that greater, wider audience. I would love to see whether or not they put in grass at BC Place for Lionel Messi. <laughs> they will not. Yeah. They will put it in for the World Cup, but I don't know if Messi will still be around or if Miami would be coming even that year or after that year. So, eh, we'll, we'll see. I don't don't hold your breath to see Lionel Messi play at uh, at BC Place. Yeah, it'd be it'd be kind of hard with uh, you know the BC Lions also playing there. So um, you know, that would be a tough one. Going to be something to, to watch for next summer should uh, the Inter-Miami be heading out to Vancouver on the schedule, which I would imagine like uh, Lionel Messi should be playing in every MLS stadium that's not Miami. But we'll see how that plays out. He's making his debut tonight in the League's Cup where the uh, Whitecaps will play Lyon uh, this weekend uh, or coming up as well. So Saturday is uh, the Lions and, and Rough Riders, and uh, up now at the province, you got uh, uh, your take on uh, the preview of this one. Lions have off to a great start. They had the bye week last week, and you know I guess it's 
really the story right now has kind of been uh, just how good Vernon Adams has looked under center for the BC Lions. Yeah, that's my cousin right there, Vernon Adams. <laughs> okay, maybe maybe we're cousins. I'm not sure. Just like Vinny Testaverde was my cousin Vinny, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, no, he he has been playing uh, really go- really well. I mean, everyone is going to like after the Toronto game when he threw the, the six interceptions. There was a lot of chatter about, oh yeah, this is this is the Vernon Adams we expected. This is the Vernon Adams. This is the reality for Vernon Adams. I don't think that's the case. I mean, he did make some mistakes. Uh, I, I would I would say three of them fell on his shoulders directly in terms of bad reads. Other ones were like lazy route running, you know, excellent defensive call, you know, situational, you know, you're down, you got to chuck it deep, you know, make something happen. So I, I, I don't think it was as bad as, as people made it out to be. And at the same time, he still had, you know, almost 400 yards passing and three touchdowns in that game. He leads the league in – completion percentage in yards he's been excellent you know he uh he, he talked to him this week about it you know and about his nickname of, of big play va and he said he, he wants to be mr consistent now he doesn't want to be known as big play va so I, I said he could be called all day va and i think that is probably a little more um, accurate for how he's playing now because he is doing very good at fitting the ball into tight windows keeping them in possession, putting drives together, their, their time of possession tops the league. You know, he's, he's, like I said, he's accurate, top in the league in completion percentage. Um, they're moving the ball. They're scoring, you know, second most points in the league. So I think they're doing all right, and a lot of that is down to his shoulders and the offensive talent that is around them with, like, Keon Hatcher, Dominique Grimes, Lucky Whitehead, Alex Hollins coming in, Javon Katoy. All those guys are, are excellent, excellent receivers, and now it looks like they've got some uh, decent talent at tailback as well behind a very solid offensive line that has not given up a ton of sacks or a ton of pressure. So offensively and defensively, I mean, they're looking really, really, really strong. Well, I mean, Dominic Grimes has kind of been the favorite, uh, say, red zone target, part target perhaps, one of the league leaders in receiving touchdowns heading into week seven of the CFL season. But one of the things that's been impressive is, like, they really, like, share the ball with, with a lot of their receivers. There isn't, like, one guy that he goes to, and maybe that's something that's going to develop as the season goes on. But what do you make of his ability, Vernon Adams, and also this offense, of not getting zoned in on, on one receiver considering how much talent they have with those, in that receiving group? Well, you can see the effect of having an off-season to prepare for a year. Like, he, he didn't have that last year when he came mid-season. was basically thrust in the fire. And, he, you know, he's admitted, you know, he, there were times that he was very tentative. He was confused. He didn't know what to do. So he just would, like, tuck the ball and run. Um, that hasn't been the case this year. And, you know, uh, props also to uh, offensive coordinator Jordan Maximic for putting uh, a package together that works best for for Vernon's strengths and and how he likes to play um so you combine you know having a an off-season of prep a training camp you know coming in with a, a system that's designed for you and it's kind of understandable why they've had success this year jj adams our guest here on uh, the people's show the uh the thing with the with the the lions too is is just their pass rush right on the defensive side of the ball it's uh, what makes them so great. It's what makes them so difficult to play against. Is is that one of the keys this weekend against the Rough Riders? Yeah, well, it's it's not just I, – I wouldn't say it's just that. I, it's a big part of it, the pressure that they get. You know, Matthew Betts, uh, David Menard, you know, Josh Banks. You know, these are some guys that are 
you know, putting a ton of pressure uh, on the opposing quarterbacks, you know, plugging holes to the line, but also defensively behind them, you know, linebackers and secondary, you know, it, it's really a very deep unit all the way across. Like there's a reason they are, you know, averaging the, the fewest uh, pass yards against in the league. It's because they have excellent, excellent defensive backs, you know, and Gary Peters, who I talked to today, said, you know, who's the best corner in the league? He's like, it's me. It's me. I'm the cream of the crop. And, you know, you, you can't really disagree with it. You look at the numbers. He had, like, one pass completed for four yards last week. You know, he's, he's a lockdown corner. Uh, you know, TJ Lee, smart, wily vet. Same with Bola Combo. Ben Halatic has come in and, and filled the shoes of, of Jordan Williams, you know, really well at the linebacker's position. So, you know, they're, they've got a lot of depth. Uh, a lot of talent, and uh, you know, Matthew Betts will get the uh, the the sack attack stats and all the attention. But it's really the entire uh, defensive unit that is playing really well. And again, props to <laughs> defensive coordinator Ryan Phillips. Uh, he he has those guys playing lights out. Well, I mean, you mentioned Betts, and you know how I mean he was solid last season as well. But this year, he really looks like the most dominant defensive player in the CFL. And you know, this is kind of the projection they had when he was drafted uh, with the third pick back in 2019. He spent some time with the Chicago Bears, had a workout last year with the Jaguars as well. After the season, are we finally seeing him like you know be that dominant presence people thought he would be? And if he keeps playing this way, is he even going to stay in the CFL much longer? Well, you know, it's tough to to make that jump to the NFL. We've seen it, but you know, uh, in terms of defensive linemen, you know, Cam Wake, you know, BC Lion went on to uh, outstanding career with the Miami Dolphins, so it can be done. You know, we're waiting to see what happens with the uh, young Nathan Work down there in Jacksonville. Uh, so you you can make the jump. Uh, it it's tough, especially if you're a Canadian lineman. Um, you know, some of those. Uh, athletic specimens they have on on the line down there you know i, I think of you know uh javon curse like back in the day like these guys are you know six four six five running a four two four three you know matthew beats is, is great i don't know if he's that great um but i do think he has the potential to be you know uh defensive player of the year you know outstanding canadian at the very least uh he is just playing you know on another level uh, that he, he definitely has not reached. He didn't reach it anywhere close when he was in Edmonton. Uh, so he, he's definitely coming into the own. I think it's just a matter of, you know, finding the right system, the right opportunity, uh, the right timing, having all those things come together. And uh, we're seeing the effects of that on the field. Before we wrap up this, this discussion, we've got to talk about the biggest star with the BC Lions, and that is their owner right now, Omar Doman, and, and just how, how he's really reshaped uh, the vision for that organization and, and how they've really gained a lot of traction. And, you know, we know they open up the Upper Bowl, and we'll see ultimately how many tickets they sell. It's going to be a good vibe, hopefully, against the Riders. But the tailgate starts at 11. They have big parties leading, leading into these games. How big of a win do you think these things are? And when you compare it to what's kind of happening in other sports and, you know, kind of the, the tack they're taking, it really seems like they have all the right ideas. And, I mean, I, I, I'm just overly I – can't I can't tell you how impressed I am with how this organization has been handling things. But what do you make of Omar Doman being just so front and center and, and continually pushing the envelope to create more content and more avenues for people to consume their product? Well, I'm going to be at BC Place tonight for the, the Whitecaps game, and I'm going to be at BC Place tomorrow for the, the Lions game, and I'm pretty sure there's going to be a difference of at least 10,000 people 
in the stands, maybe maybe even 15. Like it's going to be a, a market difference. And I too will point the fingers directly at uh, Mr. Amar Demand because he's been uh, a, a revelation. No offense to David Braley, but he was an owner in another city. You know, he was not front and present and accounted for. You know, Very Amar absentee. is out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Amar is out there. You know, he he sponsored the flag football t- uh, league in in North Bend. He was out there like his first year. He was out there handing out swag like every weekend. Now he's like coaching his son's team. He the the BC Lions owner is coaching his son's flag football team in the local league. I mean, that is, he, he feels like this, this, this team is part of the community. The Lions are part of the community and he's acting like it. And I think that is what sets them apart from say the white caps, the white caps, you know, their owners are mysterious, invisible, and rarely seen. Whereas he is front and center. He's, he's putting out promo videos, you know, every week, you know, getting people to come out. He's, He's bringing concerts, LL Cool J, One Republic. You know, we're having tailgate parties again. He's making an event. He's making it so it feels like, you know, the community and the team are one. And I think that is why people have, you know, resonated or the team has resonated with the, with the people and why we're seeing, you know, people pack the, the stands again. Like, I, I don't know when the last time the, the Whitecaps has opened up the open ball. I'm not even sure they have. Um, and And he's done a, you know, three, four times in the, in the past two years. So, you know, props to Omar. Uh, I think he deserves, you know, almost all the credit for, for what's happening there. And, of course, the team having some success on the field also helps. But uh, definitely, you know, the majority is down to him, his influence and his energy and drive for this team. I'd be curious to find out how many Whitecaps fans actually even know what the League's Cup is that's starting this weekend. So, <laughs> that's Well, a- you know, uh, it's, it's the first step towards the North American Super League. That's kind of what they're, they're thinking. They want to turn it into like a something to rival the Premier League in terms of yeah. broadcast revenue and eyeballs. But I don't know if that'll ever happen. Um, I'm pretty sure it won't. <laughs> uh, JJ, always appreciate the time. Uh, we'll take your uh, thought on uh, scoring a PK into consideration here today on the show. <laughs> don't take it into consideration. It's, it's gospel. It's gospel. <laughs> if you disagree, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Thanks, JJ. All right. Talk to you again. Uh, there he is. JJ Adams of the uh, Vancouver province joining us here on uh, The People's Show. No lies detected. <laughs> Apparently, he's, uh, he's guaranteed to score from the penalty spot against a <laughs> professional goalkeeper. Has no doubts. Yeah, we all are. Yes. It's all fun. of us, except for Reach. Reach doesn't believe in himself. I'm a coward. So. So. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. But no. you're not even willing to try. You're going to take I'm one. just taking the 10K. No, I, I, don't, I don't need to try. I'll, just, I'll put the 10K to good use, you know? Risk averse. Right. Pay for two months of rent. <laughs> Pretty much in this city. Uh, all right. Brett Festerling's going to join us, member of the 2007 Giants, as they're going into the BC Hockey Hall of Fame and also as a contributor here on Sportsnet 650. We'll talk to Brett Festerling next and also play Puck Doku. Maybe you'll be an answer on today's puzzle. We'll find out. It's coming up on Sportsnet 650. It's the People's Show, Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. We're in the Kintec studio. 
Be a part of the Jays Care Celebrity Golf Classic through the online silent auction bid on round trip flights for two, a Whistler getaway, and a Canucks VIP experience with Halford & Bruff. Visit jayscaregolf.ca for more details to make your bids. Auction closes July 27th and proceeds supporting Challenger Baseball BC. Uh, Sat, did you hear Kylian Mbappe is for sale? Yeah, I've heard. I've heard uh, they're treating him like Romelu Lukaku, leaving him out of the squad as it, if he's just a bit part player. The best player on, well, I guess there's an argument there, but arguably the best player on planet Earth, Kylian Mbappe, is uh, for sale from PSG. Should be interesting to see what happens because he's a free agent at the end of the year, so he kind of just wants to like be able to pick where he wants to go. What the, the reports are that he's already signed with Real Madrid, yes. right? So so how are you going to convince him to go somewhere else that's willing to right. pay the money for him? That's going to be interesting. Uh, kind of a big deal. Killing Mbappe for sale out of uh, PSG. You know what? Let's uh, bring in our next guest. Uh, has nothing to do with soccer, but he is going into BC's Hockey Hall of Fame today as uh, the member, as a member of the 2007 Vancouver Giants. It is friend of the show, partner here at Sports at 650. It's Brett Festerling. What's happening, Brett? Hey, how are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. We are, uh, we're, we're doing fantastic. Kind of a big weekend, hey? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's something you don't really ever think about, I guess, until until they induct you. But it's been it's been pretty neat to see everybody and the whole, you know, the events around it. So it's been pretty cool so far. Well, and as far as, you know, having some of your former teammates around and, and people making the trek to uh, to be there for these uh, for, uh, for these inductions, uh, how cool is it to see some of your former teammates and coaches and managers? Yeah, it's it's like, you, you know, old friends that you, you don't get to see because life happens. You get to come back, and obviously we all share something special, so it's, it's really like yesterday. Nothing's really changed, and, and guys kind of fall right into – to old times and old stories and and take it from there so it's been really exciting it's only been a day obviously with kind of half the guys but uh, nothing's changed which uh, makes it even more special to be honest do you guys uh reminisce about just how good that team was and, and how special it was to go through the run yeah we have actually there was a lot of good stories last night everything but a good point one of the guys brought up is we didn't have uh we didn't have a point per game guy in a Mem Cup championship team. So it really shows kind of how we did it as a committee and everybody bought in and we really just did it as a team. So it, that kind of adds to that special team dynamic, I think, in the room and really shows how tight we were as a group. Is this something that you ever thought of? Like when, when, that, when you were playing on that team, you guys go on and have that run – was was that something that at the moment you thought, okay, this is something we're always going to be remembered for? Did you feel that, or did it, did it kind of sneak up on you a bit when they inducted the, the squad here back this past October and, and it all happened? Was it a bit of a surprise, or did you know in the moment that this could be very special? I mean, you never thought about the BC Hockey Hall of Fame, if that's the mm-hmm. question, but um, was it a special group? I, I'm biased. I think it was a really special group, and, and the year before, we obviously went to Buckton for the Mem Cup and lost there. So there was a special room and core group of guys and that culture. We knew that was there when we were at, at that kind of championship level. And then, yeah, when we did those runs, it's obviously when guys win these championships, it's some of the some of the best memories of their lives. I know it's some of the best hockey memories of my life. So we knew it was special. Well, we'd, I never thought about the Hockey Hall of Fame, but it is a nice um, 
when they do that, it gives you time to kind of reflect and look back and see how special it was because life gets busy. You know, you don't really get to to reflect on those times. And uh, when you kind of are forced to a bit or get the opportunity to, I feel feel very grateful for that moment, I guess. Brett Festerling, our guest, uh, going into the BC Hockey Hall of Fame as a member of the 2000 Giants, the 2007 Giants, as they uh, go into the Hall of Fame this weekend uh, due to the 2007 win. You know, you you look at the the names on this team, and it's it's Milan Lucic, it's Cody Franson. I mean, you guys had a lot of guys that, that graduated and and went on to the the NHL, yourself included. Um, you know, was there is there something that happens during that run that kind of um, sets you up well for, you know, the journey that you're about to go on as a professional hockey player or the quest to become a professional hockey player beyond that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's huge to be honest with you. Like that, if you think about the ages of guys, when they start junior hockey, some guys start at 15, the really, you know, elite guys, but call it 16 to 20. Those are big development years. just as a human being, I think. And they kind of like, kind of ingrained certain habits, whether it's working out or eating or work ethic and practice or whatever it is, it really sets a tone for just how you're going to approach um, your hockey career. And I think that's when we, you like, obviously we've talked before about culture and locker room and all that stuff for a different team. The Giants had this, we kind of learned to embrace the hard parts. We really took pride in, in practicing way harder than we ever had to play. We were super physical in practice. We worked out hard, like our summer workouts between guys like Mahachak, Lucic, myself, Lance Boma, Gallagher, Cunningham, were extremely hard. And there was oftentimes where guys were sick training just because we just pushed ourselves. We took pride in pushing ourselves to the limit, and it was kind of – um, you know, it, it was a good story. It was happy. It was a happy place for us. So that really set a tone for guys to have professional careers and long professional careers. Cause I think they just learned to mm-hmm. embrace the hard things that, that to get them through, you know, the other side, things that a lot of people wouldn't do. When you went on to obviously play pro, you play in the NHL as well, but in terms of being around an environment like that, like where does that rank amongst your environmental experiences when it comes to being on, on hockey teams? I mean, it's up there. It, the, one, it, the one thing is it, it helped us set a tone so that we could get to the to the professional ranks, but then it also, you kind of learn or you know, and then guys like Luch got to win a championship at the NHL level. Other guys won championships in, in Europe stuff. But you kind of get to recognize early in seasons, hey, does this team have it? And is the right culture here? So um, it ranks high for me. And, and it kind of spoiled me early, but it also let me know kind of when, you know, recognize early in seasons if those teams had it or if changes need to be made kind of thing. What was Don Hay like as coach? <laughs> Don uh, was great. He, he, he was old school. He was intense. Um, he really uh, – he didn't make life easy on us. He, he demanded perfection. But, again, that goes back to set us in, setting us up for – future expectations in the real world in the world of professional sports because we knew that we needed to be consistent and and perform at a high level every time we're on the ice so he demanded perfection and he wasn't easy but uh, I think every guy in that room will thank him for it for where they are now 
Well, I, I mean, and that's the funny thing, right? Because, like, at the moment, you know, it's very difficult, and I know it's probably easy for younger guys sometimes to kind of look at it and say, you know what, I can't wait to get away from this. But when it comes to that accountability and having coaches that, that are kind of, you know, creating that culture or are able to get people on board, like, is it worth the pain, ultimately? Like, do you come to realize that with coaches like that? Yeah, you do. You do. But there, I think there's a very fine line, too, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. no... You know, you can't excuse some of the behavior of some of the old old coaches. They probably went a little too far trying to get that best out of their players. You know, there is a method behind the madness. But, um, yeah, exactly. In the time, it's, it makes you question a lot of things, and I think that's part of it, part of that mental game of, of really having to grit it out, I guess, and get through and prove to yourself that you can do it. But, um, yeah, he was he was instrumental for for a lot of us. Now, a lot of you guys were were on the team the prior year that uh, came up just short in the in the semifinals of the of the Mem Cup. Um, yeah, the, the old cliche goes: sometimes you got to lose before you can you can win. Uh, did, did that apply? Did you did you have some lessons learned along the way that helped you get through it? For sure. I mean, the 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 greatest teacher for me is, is failure. Right, like that's it teaches you the most. So it was really painful for us to lose the year before. I think we learned a lot. It's really weird coming off this big playoff run, championship euphoria, and then a week later you're in a tournament where it means absolutely nothing. Yeah. And then you and then you lose in the Mem Cup, and then it's like that. It, it feels like it meant nothing. So it's a it's a really weird couple of weeks there, but it did teach us a lot about the tournament and being prepared for the tournament and how that would happen. And um, just that whole transition from the Western league finals to the finals, I think it really helped us out there. And then there's a part of the round Robin just in that format that once you go through it, you kind of learn you're not out of it. There's always chances and how to really kind of, you know, play through that. And that's a different schedule. So it definitely helped us out going the year before. And as far as that Mem Cup run that year, like, were were there moments where, because we always talk about this in terms of like, you know, teams that ultimately win the Stanley Cup and teams that go on to win playoffs, win and win at the end, they have moments where you don't think it's going to happen, and some teams are just like they, they feel so confident about how things are going, they have no doubt they're going to win. What was that like that year? Like, did you have moments where you thought, okay, like this is going to be tough, or was it just the supreme confidence throughout the playoffs? We had a we had a pretty confident group. Like we really, really when you talk about that culture and the, and how hard we worked in practice and stuff, we it was one of those moments where like it was hard to believe that anybody was working harder than us, really. So we were super confident. The year before, I think the Western League might be the best Western League final like record ever. I think we're sixteen and two. And then we lost to the Mem Cup. So we had a lot of confidence going into that. Halfway through the Mem Cup year, we did lose our starting goalie. He decided to leave the team. So that threw a wrinkle into kind of our expectations. But Tyson Jacksmith jumped in and he did, uh, you know, extremely well and, and obviously got the job done. So I don't know. Like, man, uh, Medicine Hat obviously had a good team and they, it was a good, really good rivalry. We obviously, that's well documented. Lost second OT game seven of the finals to lose um, the WHL championship. And then we lost in the round robin to them one nothing and then go go into the finals and win that one. So, I mean, I don't think there was ever a moment we thought they were a better team, but it was a good rivalry that way. But we definitely knew we could get it done, that's for sure. Hey, Brett, really uh, appreciate your time. Congrats on the induction, and uh, enjoy the festivities tonight. Thank you. Appreciate it.
Uh, Are you staying cool out there, considering it's 37 <laughs> degrees in Penticton, like Joey Kenward just told me? Yeah, it is pretty hot. Actually, a bunch of guys went golfing today, and I had I pulled shoes. There's no way I was going to go sit in the sun and then go to a gala tonight. Uh, it might have been a good choice. Uh, thanks for this, Brett. <laughs> you bet. Uh, there is uh, Brett Festerling. And, uh, yeah, if you're in the uh, Penticton area and listening to this, uh, the 2007 Giants, Brett Festerling included, going into the BC Hockey Hall of Fame, uh, the event still selling tickets at BCHHOF as uh, they celebrate what were the 2007 Memorial Cup champions and Brett Festerling a part of that and uh, uh, helps us out here during the course of the season as a color analyst uh, for some mm-hmm. Canucks games as well. Yeah, he's he's been a great find for us. I mean, he, fantastic guy, first and foremost, but every time he's been on the post-game show breaking things, like he sees the game so well, he understands, you know, the, the, the geeky stuff we love getting into, and he was so good at identifying the Canucks' issues last year, and a lot of it came down to, like he mentioned, the culture stuff and accountability. So, you know, he's great when it comes to his, his insight on stuff, and that Vancouver Giants team in general, I mentioned Joey, he just texted me too and said 14 players from that team went on to play in the National Hockey League. Yeah. And that may be an NHL record. Uh, we have to double-check that. But that tells you quite a bit when you, you have over half the roster playing the National Hockey League. Yeah. And uh, as he mentioned, you know, it's, a lot of them, you know, didn't uh, necessarily have, you know, star NHL careers, but they they worked at it and they gave themselves a decent chance to play pro hockey for a long time. And that's uh, – that's something that he talks so much about the culture of that team, and I think that uh, that helped them go on to their pro careers, at least for a lot of those players on that 2007 Giants squad. It's uh, Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. You are listening to The People's Show on Sportsnet 650. Lots still to come. We're going to get to uh, Ryan Divish after 4 o'clock at the Mariners' side of the Blue Jays and Mariners' series. But uh, something we've uh, kind of made a daily tradition here on the show. It's time to play Puck Doku. Sat, you missed it yesterday. We had a uh, Canucks column for Puck Doku. Oh, we did? Yeah. Oh, wow. And you missed it. That's too bad. How was your was day just... on the on the hot golf course, by the way? Oh, it was fantastic. Had a great time with our good friend Johnny Wu from BCLC and uh, Sandra and Nitesh from Sales. We had a good time in the Abcom Golf Tournament, and uh, um, I didn't embarrass myself too much, so that's what I felt <laughs> good about more than anything else. And we had a good time. We had a good time. It was best ball. We ended up going one under as a team, so nice. it, it, was, it was a respectable day for, for our foursome uh, at Mayfair. What a wonderful golf course, by the way. Oh, man. It is a lovely golf course. Yeah. Uh, Mayfair Lakes, and yes, I will find the water. Quite often, yeah. whenever I, <laughs> I play found, yeah, at Mayfair I, uh, Lakes, <laughs> I lost two balls only, and I'd lost them on the same hole hitting the water. So, <laughs> I'm surprised only two balls. I mean, only two balls. Actually, not bad. Like I, I said, I felt pretty good about I it. I think the day I played there last summer, I must have lost like seven. <laughs> it was bad. Just no matter what, I was finding water everywhere. I was just trying to lay it up. I was like, I ain't gonna try to. <laughs> you know, I'm not hitting it 180 yards over yeah. the water. Let me just I get it to the lip, and I'll just chip it over. No uh, no hero ball over here. Nope. All right, Puck Doku, you guys know how to play it by now. 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. You want to play along with us. Um, the game, pretty self-explanatory. We got nine boxes to fill out the puzzle, and each box will have two things correlating to it. So today's first box is the New Jersey Devils and Pittsburgh Penguins 
We've got to pick a player that played at least one game with both of those teams. And the more obscure, the more rare the player, the better. You get a better score for the uniqueness of your puzzle compared to others that are filling it out today. So, the New Jersey Devils and Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, We're starting off with this one here today. Uh, the easy one that comes to mind right away is John Marino because he was just traded from yep. the Penguins to the Devils this year. John Marino would work. Now, I guess the other side of that would be Ty Smith. Oh, So maybe a little bit less yes. obvious. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Ty Smith is good. Did he play a game for the Pens last year? Uh, I assume he did. He played nine games with the Pens last year. He did? Okay. After a there quick look up. I like that better. I like that better. Uh, this text comes in Paul Martin. Ooh, that's a good one. I think Not we're going to have defense minister Paul Martin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we're going to have to go with Paul Martin. Oh no, sorry, he was the finance minister. I think. Never mind. Yeah. Anyways, he was a politician. <laughs> Quinn Quinn uh, texting in Ben the Rev- Reverend Lovejoy. Yes. Oh, that's a good one, Ben Lovejoy. And we are what a name, uh, by the way. We are diving deep into uh, the New Jersey Devils and Pittsburgh Penguins history. I think we got to go with Ben Lovejoy, fellas. Yeah, great name. Uh, two percenter. Nice job. Uh, also appreciate the Paul Martin shouts coming in on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Next up is New Jersey Devils and Columbus Blue Jackets. This one was tough. Ooh, Devils and Blue Jackets. Yeah. yeah that's a good one. So I know this just for my affinity of enforcers of years past that don't oh, really, man. they just yeah. don't exist much in today's game. I know where you're going. Christoph Oliwa. Uh, great one. Gr- great one. As soon as you mentioned, I'm like, oh, that one makes sense. Yeah. It's going yeah. to uh, hard to beat. <laughs> it's yeah, going to be hard to beat Christoph Oliwa. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, all right, we're going to go with Christoph Oliwa. Uh, that's a one percenter. Nice one. New Jersey Devils, 50-plus assists in a single season. 50-plus assists in a 50 single plus. season. There's, yeah. like, guys like Scott Gomez. Gomez for sure did it. Yeah. I, I would I would guess Patrick Elias did yeah, it at some Elias point in his career. Yeah, Elias probably did it at some point. Would Scott Niedermeyer have done it? Did Niedermeyer have huge point years? They never Jersey? scored that much in New Jersey. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think he had. I think he had his biggest years in, in, in uh, Anaheim, Anaheim, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Who was feeding pucks to Brendan Shanahan in those uh, Devils days? I think Scott Gomez is probably the answer here. That's a good one. That's a, that's a real. I think Scott Gomez is one. Um, yeah. Could uh, Ryan Rafalski be one? I'm, I'd be scared to go with defensemen, though. I just feel like there's got to be one guy around that time that was like. Jamie Langenbrunner? Yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't a big scorer. He was kind of a defensive guy. So you have to play for the Devils to score 50 points? Is anybody who yeah, you have to score 50, 50 points, or 50, 50 assists, assists while playing with the Devils. I feel like Gomez is the, the safe answer. Gomez is definitely – I guess the other name, uh, Kirk Muller. Ah, did he have as many points? I don't know. Man, you're right. The Devils are just like such low-scoring teams. <laughs> it's just so hard. Let's to go like, with Scott Gomez because we're all pretty confident. Sure. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're all pretty confident about it. 11% on Scott Gomez. Ah, that's high. Uh, San, San Jose, Pittsburgh. We're going through the next uh, the next row. San Jose and Pittsburgh. Now uh, this is just like driving up all the uh, interest in like trade off season discussion, right? Right. Eric Carlson going to Pittsburgh and stuff like that. 
Patrick yeah. Marlowe. Uh, yes, that's a good one. Patrick but I, I feel like that's, that's fresh on people's mind. It might be. Man. Sandus Ozilich never played for the Penguins, did he? No, I no, don't think did. so. Um, there's definitely some easier answers. 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Um, Dalton Prout? No, I don't think uh, Dalton Prout. Oh, that was uh, that was an earlier text. <laughs> For New Jersey and uh, Columbus. That's a very deep reach. Yeah, somebody texted in and said, um, Paul Martin works for that, too. Yeah. No, you know, and the only reason I know this is because I recently looked his name up, is uh, Mika Kippersoff. Or, sorry, Mikhail Samuelson. Mikhail Samuelson. Oh. Oh, right. Right. All right. I think we're going with Mikhail Samuelson. We're trusting like Josh because I don't remember Samuelson as a uh, – I remember being very surprised that he played, like, a few games for uh, San Jose. Yeah. Oh, somebody texted in Bonino. Good one. Oh, Bonino, Bonino, Bonino. Yeah. San Jose Columbus is up next. San Jose and Columbus. Do, 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 do. San Jose Columbus. Let the uh, Dunbar Lumber text message inbox populate a little bit with some potential answers for San Jose and Columbus. We should have used Paul Martin. Yeah, we've had so many texts about Paul Martin today. I He's know. getting more airtime than any uh, <laughs> than any current Canuck, but Paul Martin, San Jose and Columbus. Oh, that's good. That's a bit of a. I like. I just have such a um, a blank spot for the Columbus Blue Jackets. That's part of my problem here. You got like a lot of forgettable players yeah. over the years. You got to find a guy that was like. Notable elsewhere, and then just played a season in Columbus. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, wow. Wow. 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Would Pat Falloon work? <laughs> I don't Pat think so. Pat Falloon? <laughs> um, no. Oh, somebody just texted in. I think this is a good one. Ray Whitney. Would Ray Whitney work? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Hey, he was drafted by the Sharks. Ray Whitney drafted by the Sharks. Yeah. Also played for the Blue Jackets. There you go. But did he play a game with the Sharks? Oh, yeah. He played a bunch of games. He spent one, two, three, four, five years with the Sharks. Oh, wow. Okay. San Jose Sharks, 50-plus assists, single season. Easy one would be Joe Thornton. Obviously, Eric Carlson. Eric Carlson. Um, Marlowe. Marlowe. Marlowe Couture, probably. Did Pavelski ever get there? I don't know if Pavelski was as much of an assist guy. Yeah. Did Owen Nolan ever get 50 assists there? No. He He was more of a goal scorer. Yeah. The Uh, O-Dog, Owen Nolan. Same with Chichu was probably more of a a goal guy. Did Vinny Danfus ever get there? Yeah, he would have. Would he? 50? Uh, Or Jeff Friesen, maybe? I don't know if Friesen had that many points. Did he? I don't know. I don't think no. so. All right. We I'll probably go with Joe Thornton, probably. Let's go with uh, Thornton. We're running out of time. That's a 55 percenter. Tough one. Uh, Calgary-Pittsburgh is next. Calgary and Pittsburgh. Jerome McGinley is an easy one. I oh, like yeah. it. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, Calgary and Columbus is up next. 
Eric Goodbranson. Johnny Goudreau. There you go. Johnny Goudreau. Johnny Goudreau. Johnny Goudreau. That's an easy one. The layup. Uh, Do Goody. Goodbranson. Yeah. 17%. And 50 plus assists for the Calgary Flames. Craig Conroy or Damon Lankow? Conroy ever get there? Yeah, he had some big seasons, didn't he? It's too late. No, he didn't get to 50. Did, like the old school guys, like Lanny Neuendike or like Lanny? Oh, yeah. I don't know if Lanny did. Uh, Sergey Makarov. <laughs> oh, I got a good blast from the past. Okay. I got a good one. Paul Reinhardt. Oh. And he would have got to uh, He definitely had enough points, 100%. 100%. He was one of the big, best, uh, one of the highest point-producing defensemen uh, in the league for a while. So I'm sure he hit 50 assists. Okay. Uh, all right, let's go with Reinhardt. Oh, that's a perfect score and a good one at that. 122 on the uniqueness. Another great Doku today. There we go. Shouts to you for helping us out with this one on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Alex Tangay would have been a great name. Yeah, Ryan Divish is coming up next on Sports at 650. It is the People's Show on Sports at 650. We're in the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported. By over 2,500 five-star Google reviews, find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Blue Jays and Seattle Mariners tonight at T-Mobile Park. And uh, it's uh, going to be a good one. Ryan Divish is going to join us here in a couple of moments. Sad, I have to tell you, your yeah. call on Paul Reinhardt, you were one of 40 people that have completed Puck Toku today to input Paul Reinhardt into Amazing. the puzzle. Amazing. It was a 0.1% answer. <laughs> you know, that, that's great. I mean, former Vancouver Canuck, Paul yeah. Reinhardt. You know, uh, the Canucks acquired Paul Reinhardt from the Calgary Flames, and they finally got their top number one defenseman, the type of defenseman they were looking for, and then he just got hurt and couldn't play anymore. Yeah, just didn't. Pretty uh, much. Didn't really work out the way that uh, you would have. He spent two years hoped. here. It was pretty. It was, it was pretty incredible. So in 88, 89, 89, 90, he had 57 points in 67, 64 games, and had 57 and 67. So I mean, Dennis Kearns, of course, had had some higher totals, but Paul Reinhardt. I know I, uh, people of that vintage would oftentimes say he was the best defenseman before we got to you know the 2000s to ever suit up for the Canucks. Uh, let's uh, table that conversation and bring in Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times. As uh, Ryan gets ready for the Canadian invasion of uh, T-Mobile Park, what's happening, Ryan? Uh, not much. Um, just you know, waiting to see if there's a large maple leaf flag somewhere around here. Or, you know, <laughs> if they, you know, I don't know if they the bars went and got a bunch of Canadian or Labatt. I don't know. I haven't been to Canada in a while, so other than Toronto, and sometimes that's not exactly going to Toronto is exactly Canada. Having grown up. On the border between Montana and Alberta. Yeah, Toronto's a little bit of a different different animal. Maybe uh, many <laughs> uh, Canada's uh, version of of New York, I guess. Uh, some people. Yeah, would say. my girlfriend actually, she lives in Montana, but her son is playing baseball in scenic Vauxhall, Alberta today. And so I was looking at the video and remember when I was a kid playing in Vauxhall and Tabor, Red Deer, all those great 
big places in Alberta. Um, so tonight, the the big series between the Mariners and uh, Blue Jays starting, and you know the the Mariners. Um, I, I guess you could say, you know, at, at five hundred, bit of a disappointment the way the season has started to this point. Uh, what's sort of holding this team back from getting back into the playoff picture? Um, well, I mean, my college coach used to call it lost, lack of freaking talent. Um, <laughs> that's part of it. I mean, like they just don't hit. They're not a very good offensive team. You know, Julio hasn't been Julio Rodriguez hasn't been great this year. Uh, they had a lot of high expectations for him. He hasn't really been the same kind of player he was last year. Uh, Eugenio Suarez and Ty France have also been kind of down. Um, you know, Cal Raleigh, the catcher, hasn't been as productive. So a lot of guys that they were thought were going to take a step forward in their progression or their production took a significant step back, and that's that's really hurt them. I mean, they just aren't a very good team offensively. They're not the worst, but they're not great situationally. They strike out a ton. And even somebody like Teo, uh, who they, they expected to be kind of a middle-of-the-order presence, he's been probably even more streaky than he was with the Jays, and that's been a problem because when he's been hot, it's when other players have been hot, but when he's been cold, he hasn't been able to kind of help them out. And, and I think that's I mean, the thing with T. Oscar as well. Like, even with, with Toronto, he would be hot and cold. But when he got really hot, he was as hot as anybody. And I guess that's, that's just as it hasn't quite happened so far for the Mariners this season. But, you know, in terms of their overall run differential, I mean, they're plus 28 despite being 500. Is that some maybe some a sign of there is something there if they can get on a bit of a run here? I mean, five and a half games is, is quite a bit. But considering, you know, they, they have, what, 67 games to go on the season – is there something there that, that perhaps can get them going considering they have scored more runs than they've given up? Well, yeah, it's, it's the run prevention aspect of their run differential that gives them a chance, that allows them to maybe make a run because their starting pitching is that good that that's what's kept them in it. You know, their, their starters have been absolutely outstanding all year. I mean, there have been hiccups here and there. But, you know, you think about it, Robbie Berry made one start through four innings and never pitched again. And they just threw in a rookie named Bryce Miller, and he's filled in nicely. Marco Gonzalez went out. They bring in a kid named Brian Wu, and he's been outstanding. I mean, like the Mariners starting pitching gives them a chance to win almost every night. I think they leave baseball with quality starts or their top three. But, you know, that's why they, they would be able to, and that's why their run differential has been is, is in the positive. is isn't because they're hitting enough. It's because they just don't give up a lot of runs. And, you know, that's, that's, that's been their calling card the last few years. But in the past, the Mariners would hit just enough or do enough situationally to kind of eke out more wins. But, you know, like the one-run games and, and things like that have kind of regressed to the mean. Um, and that's what they were so good at the last few years. So that's the pitching is what's going to give them a chance. But I don't know, you know, really that's why they've been so 500 all year is that the pitching has been so outstanding. Uh, but, you know, they've never been more than four games above 500, and they've never been more than four games below 500. It's like win two, lose two, you know. They never never really gain any traction one way or the other. What's it been with uh, Julio Rodriguez? I mean, OPS just over 700 for the year. Um, what's What's been the problem, the biggest issue for him at the dish? Oh, I just swing, swinging it too much, too many pitches. He's trying to hit his way out of it, and what he's – what they found is, is just like, you don't have to throw him strikes. He's going to keep swinging. You know, the Mariners, I mean, they have one of the highest strikeout percentages in all of baseball. Uh, had Jared Kelnick not got hurt, I mean, they would probably have two, 
at least three guys with over 200 strikeouts this season. Teo and, and Suarez and probably Jared and Julio's tracking that way as well. But yeah, Julio just swings at too many pitches. I mean, like, he just didn't realize, I think. And, you know, he said he did. He said all the right things. But, you know, when you're a superstar like him and you have that much talent, teams just aren't going to give you a lot to hit. Mm-hmm. And then when you continue to swing at pitches that aren't in the strike zone, you give them no reason to throw you strikes. So, like, you, you see it now, too. He gets behind. Teams will throw him sliders away, sliders away, and eventually he'll expand the zone and chase one. You know, what's happened, too, is he's so cognizant of that slider away that now you can beat him with a fastball in, and that never happened. So his approach is a little flawed, and, you know, he really, you know, at 22 years old, it's, it's been hard for him to try and figure his way out of it. There have been stretches, but it's just, you know, and I think part of it, too, is as the, the star player, he makes the most money. He has a hyper-active uh, sense of responsibility for the offense and the team's success. So when this team struggles, he tries to fix it himself, and that's kind of the worst thing you can do, you know. And and that's why I think for Teo, you know, Teo is a great player when you have good players that kind of are the aircraft carriers, and he's a supporting guy. You know, he's a talented supporting guy, but like, you know, the Jays have Vlad and Bo Bichette to take a lot of the focus off of that. So Teo can just go out there and do his thing. You know, coming here, they needed him to be more than that, and he just hasn't been able to do it. And then with Julio not doing it you know, it really has placed more of an emphasis on him. And he's kind of done the same thing where he just kind of swings at everything, trying to hit his way out of stuff. You know, you're in a contract year, you're not putting up the numbers you want. That's also an issue too. So it's it's been a culmination of a lot of things. But Julio and Teo not really being who they want him to be has been a problem for this offense. You mentioned Jared Kelnick and his injury. And, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those preventable ones, obviously, because he kicks a water cooler, breaks his foot. He's on the 10-day IL, and we'll see all, ultimately how long he stays there. But he's one of those guys that, in his young career, he's shown a lot of talent but has played on that emotional edge. But but how tough is a t- an injury like that to have, considering how well he was playing at the plate for that team? Yeah, I mean, like, he's – like, of the, of the players on the team – he um oh they're playing the Canadian national anthem for trade me odds so I'm doing it. Um no they you know, all the players on their lineup, only JP Crawford and Jerry Kelnick have, have kind of exceeded expectations. You know, JP's been outstanding, he's been their best player overall. Um Jared, you know, like the bar wasn't set really high, but he has become you know, he's shown enough that you you know you really kind of believe that he's starting to catch up with all the expectations. It wasn't right there and it wasn't perfect, but he is a power presence in the lineup. He's a left-handed bat with some pop, you know, and he was starting, he was having good at bats coming out of the all-star break. So to go and get angry and kick a water cooler after he had a phenomenal bat against you on Duran, which is, you know, guys up there pumping 105 mile per hour fastballs at him, you know, and then drops a perfect 90 mile per hour sinker slider thing that he calls it right in the corner. And he can't be mad about it, but Jared is very intense. And I think it speaks to the buildup of frustration with this team, surrounding this team. So, you know, he kicks a water cooler and he's out probably four to six weeks. And, you know, that's that's a problem. You know, they called up a kid from AAA who's not nearly as good. They're going to have to run a platoon there instead. And, it, you know, that's not what you want 10 days before the trade deadline and you're, you know, five and a half back in the wild card and four teams ahead of you. So what's the plan here ahead of uh, the August 1st deadline then for the Mariners? We got, they, they got 10 games to prove themselves, honestly, to see if – and I don't think even if they – let's say they go – over these next 10 games, they go 7-3. and three. 
you know, get into maybe second or third in the wild card or second, you know, right two games back of the wild card or something. I still don't think like Jerry DePoto is going to go out and get a huge name. He might add some pieces, but he's not going to go make the kind of trade he made last year when he went and got Luis Castillo. One, they don't have the talent at the upper levels to generate that kind of a, a command or a player in return. I don't know that there is that many hitters in return, but you know, that's, they have to do something here in the next 10 games to justify the Mariners adding and not selling off Teo or Paul Seawald or, or uh, the backup catcher, Tom Murphy. Cause if it goes South and they go, you know, four and six or three and seven, and there's six games out of the wild card, Jerry DePoto will, will move Teo and he'll move their closer and he'll move some other guys because, you know, the season is lost and try and, you know, re-strengthen the core around Julio and, and, J.P. Crawford and Kelnick and Cal Raleigh and that pitching staff by making some moves. Well, I mean, how much of a temptation could there be? Even if let's say they they let's say they play 500 ball over the next 10, they're kind of still in the same spot they're at. But considering how attendance numbers are up, the interest is back with the Mariners. Do you think there is any sense of let's see what we can do just to keep people engaged here and not lose some momentum? Yeah, I mean that is true, and that's a thing. But like. You know, it would look bad, but then again, Jerry DePoto a few years ago traded Kendall Graveman when he has like a, had a 1.7 ERA. He was the team's closer, one of the leaders. They traded him to the Astros, their hated rival, who they were playing, and they were only three games out of the wild card. But Graveman was going to be a free agent. They were trying to offload money for Rafael Montero and didn't want to eat it all, so they found a way to do it with the Astros. And they they didn't seem to really care what the players thought or what the fans thought, and it was a bad moment. And that team missed the playoffs by two games, and they went three and seven after the Graveman trade. So you know maybe they've learned from that mistake, but it's hard to say. I mean, like Jerry and those guys believe that what they do is right, and they don't really care if other people disagree with them. If they believe in their mind what they're doing is right, they're going to do it. And he's also working in the confines of a uh, of an owner that hasn't really wanted to spend an ownership group that hasn't really wanted to spend like they bragged that they would. So we'll see. Um, I think sometimes you know some of these GMs. You think, well, man, if it's if they're not going to be if you're not going to be really good, you'd rather be able to trade off pieces and get better. And the Mariners do need some talent for years ahead because their farm system is a little barren in the upper level. So I don't know. I, I'm I'm really interested. I mean, that comes down to the ownership group saying, hey, leave this together, see if we can make a push. But if you're going to leave it together, if you're going to leave it together to try and make a push towards the end and still be competitive product then you better go get some people to help you, even if it's on the periphery, because right now the team doesn't have enough talent to really to really contend the way it's set up. Yeah, and it, it does feel uh, – it, it, it kind of adds to the disappointment because it has felt like there's been a, a resurgence of interest in the Mariners, right? They're top ten in, in attendance so far this year. You're coming off the momentum of the All-Star game, and, you know, that was a great spectacle for baseball over the over, over those over that weekend. And it just feels uh, like this season has just fell short on so many different levels yeah. by this team. Yeah, our um, our columnist, Larry Stone, wrote an interesting column a few weeks ago just about whether or not it was like the most disliked Mariners team because of the expectations and because of what, you know, they said at the beginning of the year that they wanted to contend for the division title and all this stuff and they come out and laid an egg. What they do is, like, they're just kind of, like I said, they're not good, but they're not bad, and they play boring, and they strike out a lot, and it's just like, it's. I think it's been hard for team fans to get behind this team as much as they want to, and they've really tried hard, and the, the numbers are still there. 
in terms of attendance, but man, it's the frustration level is growing, you know? And I mean, like this is a, a town that really got sucked into the, the postseason last year and the all-star and everything else. And, and really the Mariners have done everything to kind of kill any momentum they've had from those, those two things. Hey Ryan, uh, really appreciate the time and, and the insights. Uh, enjoy the Canadian invasion uh, this weekend. All right. Sounds good. Take it easy guys. Uh, there is uh, Ryan Divish of the uh, Seattle Times joining us here on the People Show. Feels like a lot of similarities between the uh, Mariners and Blue Jays this year. <laughs> yes, yes. There, uh, there's been more than uh, one or two of them, right? And I, I would say though, like, the issue with the Mariners, like, I know it's going to sound, you know, like it, it's the same thing, but the Jays have probably been a bit better than the Mariners have been. Like, I, the, the, I think there's been more bad luck for the Jays' batters than yeah. there's been for uh, the Mariners' batters. Because the Mariners, like, they're they're underachieving. The Jays are as well. But, like, I do see a lot of, like, just things aren't going their way right now yeah. at, at the plate. And the thing with baseball is, though, baseball doesn't doesn't care. Like, it's not going to be like, oh, we're going to give, we'll make it up for you for the final 50 games. It doesn't work that way. Maybe you just have an off year or whatever it is. But I think that's a frustrating part for the Jays because they should be more productive than, than they've been. Yeah. Well, watching the Jays has been uh, a grind at times this year, just like yeah. pulling teeth to score runs with this team. And uh, very, um, you know, anytime – like there's things about uh, like baseball. There's like there's huge situations. And when a team struggles in those big situations consistently, it can be extremely frustrating to watch as a fan. And And the Jays are – kind of that right like they've been so poor with runners in scoring position all season long and yeah you could say some of that is down to luck and their batted ball luck has been terrible in those situations and and things of that nature but it's just it's happened consistently now going all the way back to last year so it's starting to feel like a trait of the current roster right and I think there's on both of these teams there's more talent offensively than they've shown so far this year but that talent is more apparent on the Blue Jays roster than it is the Mariners roster right like yeah outside of Julio Rodriguez having a very disappointing season like I don't know there's anybody you're looking at on the Mariners roster that they trot out there on a regular basis that you're like man that guy should be way better than he has been so far this year I I don't know if it's that much of a difference compared to what we've seen with the Blue Jays and you know even somebody like Alejandro Kirk having a you know sub 650 OPS so far this year. Yeah, and I think that's the I think that's the part issue there for uh, a lot of the Jays players like Alejandro Kirk. Like, has there been a, a player who's fallen off the cliff more than Alejandro Kirk? And it's not just you know this year. Like even towards the end of last season, like he's like, he doesn't look like the same guy at all. Yeah. It's uh, it's been very disappointing watching Alejandro Kirk, especially, you know, with the, what the Jays gave up in the uh, Dalton Varsho trade, who's uh, also kind of just been like left-handed Randall Grichik with uh, better defense, better uh, defense, better base runner. <laughs> like he's still the thing about I get it, I get it. Dalton Varsho though, it's still like a what two-win player right now. Yeah, according to like, Baseball Reference, he's a two-win player or just under a two-win player. That's not bad. Yep. You know, I mean, and again, like he's he's not playing at his best, but that's kind of why the Jays don't want to go out and like overspend to add something because I'm Ross Atkins sort of alluded to this. Like they still believe Varsho's bat's going to turn around, maybe not a ton, but it's going to turn around a little bit. 
but how much does it need to turn around? Right, it needs to turn around. Don't get me wrong, but like, he needs to kind of get to like, can he be? Can he get to it like close to 700 OPS? If he yeah. gets to that, close to that with his defense, he'll be like a two and a half, three win player consistently. And to have that, it's, I know it's not the type of two, three win player that you want in terms of bombing it at the plate and just you know launching balls and being great. But you can still have the same value if you're good on the bases and you're good defensively. Uh, we do have a little bit of breaking news from the National oh. Hockey League. Uh, per Elliot Friedman, the Seattle Kraken and Vince Dunn have avoided arbitration with a four-year deal at $7.35 million per. So a pretty big raise for Vince Dunn here with the Seattle Kraken. $7.35 million per. That's uh, going to take him just a little bit over $30 million for the total value of the contract with the uh, with the Seattle Kraken here. And now they can maybe uh, figure out what else they want to do <laughs> with their roster now that this Vince Dunn contract is done. Well, how much how much cap space do they have now after making the signing? I guess I they'll have uh, not very much, yeah. I mean, are they over the cap now with the signing? They will be over the cap, yes. Yeah. Um, so they were in on the Eric Carlson sweepstakes, so... I think there's some things that they could do, maneuver, finagle to to make some things happen if they yeah. really do so choose. But um, yeah, this is I gonna think, this is gonna make it difficult for them. I think they're just actually they have about nine hundred thousand in cap space now. Yeah. So they're this, this is their roster unless they make like they're not gonna be able to add anything unless they trade players away, right? And I mean, if you look at it for next year, they have Wenberg and and Eberle coming up, yeah. and that's gonna give them about ten million. Same with Justin Schultz, so that's thirteen, and if the cap goes up, but all of a sudden, like, and, and listen, I'm not saying the Kraken are done. They're not going to be a good team or anything, but they're going to start dealing with, okay, like we don't have as much cap space and flexibility as we had a couple of years ago starting next season already. Like, it's it's pretty it's pretty incredible how quickly that cap space goes, right? Mm-hmm. And the Kraken are going to be at a spot pretty soon that if they're going to do anything, they're going to have to do money in and money out. And when it comes to a couple of key players they're going to have to sign. Yep. Like, see what Tolbinen does, for instance. Like, Matty Benier is a free agent after this year already, right? Yep. So, like... I mean, I'm not saying this is what you're going to – what, what you're seeing is what you're going to get for the next four to five years, but for this Seattle Kraken team now to become the type of contender year in and year out, what really has to happen is their draft picks coming through, the younger players being developed and coming up and playing because already they've, they've, they've spent a significant portion of their cap space for this year and next season. They really need uh, Beneers to continue to grow as a player and obviously Shane Wright uh, to hit big their fourth overall selection from – a year ago, and you know what they they've they did a pretty good job of collecting a few uh, extra second rounders and things of that mm-hmm. nature. So, you know they they have some talent coming as well with guys like uh, Jagger Furcus and um, Edward Shala, who they just drafted this year as well. So they, they've got some interesting young talent, young crop growing, but you know still a, a team and a roster that at least name value-wise, is a little bit underwhelming. So we'll see how they continue to develop. But four years, seven three five million per for Vince Dunn. He was uh, probably the biggest arbitration hearing that we were still waiting on. And I guess uh, the other one now is to see what happens with Samsonov in Toronto. They'll probably have to uh, buy out Matt Murray or see if he ends up on LTIR moving forward for the Maple Leafs. Uh, Coming up, we'll get into a mailbag to close out the show. Your questions for us as uh, it'll be a final edition of Sat and I together, I think, until 
September. Sack goes away for a few weeks, and I go away for a few weeks. So it'll be a while. Mailbag is next on Sports at 650.